I am vengeance. I am the night. I am also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Oh! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about that many Batman podcasts. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show! Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> I am a podcast. Whoa! Hey! with fans and people, people who Happy belated Batman Day, everybody. Welcome to Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Michael, and you're listening to an audio variety show for your ears based on the legendary 1990s cartoon, Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, Flying Mechanical Hands. Travel the globe in the second most impractical way imaginable, atop a flying bronze mechanical hand. Today's probably our longest episode ever, but that doesn't mean it's not chock full of interesting things. In fact, it features writers from Batman past and Batman present. First, I'll be talking about the very first Riddler episode, If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Rich?, with Justice League action writer and Bat fan himself, Jonathan Callan. Then, John and I will sit down with his buddy and episode writer, David Wise, to talk about his career, writing for Batman, Star Trek the Animated Series, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and more. So... Guys, let's get to it. Today's episode, If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Rich? When video game creator Edward Nigma is fired, he takes revenge on his former boss years later as the costumed criminal known as The Riddler. Original air date, November 18th, 1992, written by David Wise, directed by Eric Radomski, music by Carlos Rodriguez, with animation services by Blue Pencil. Featuring guest voices John Glover as the Riddler, Gary Frank as Mockridge, Brock Peters as Lucius Fox, and Hal Rail as a henchman. Today's fan, John Callan. John's living the dream, you guys. Having grown up a Batman the Animated Series fan, he now works with his heroes from that show on the upcoming Justice League action cartoon. He's also written for Ben 10 Omniverse, Slug Terra, and Generator Rex. He's a smart guy who cares deeply about this kind of stuff, and I'm so happy to have him on the show. Please, enjoy. I'm sitting down with Jonathan Callen. We are in my bedroom, very sultry place to record a podcast, very professional. How are you? I, I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> we met because of this show, which is pretty cool. We did, in fact. Uh, yeah. You mean your podcast? Yes. Yeah. I totally reached out to you because I love the podcast. And we hung out. We had a real proper hang, and now we're doing it podcast style. You are currently a writer on Justice League Action which I think a lot of people who listen to this will be really excited about. Uh, when that got announced, I feel like that was the first thing that people were like, this is the closest thing to the Timverse that I can get without it being the Timverse right now. Um, so we'll get to that in a bit. But let's just dive into your background. Where are you from? Uh, I'm originally from Jersey. A uh, great place to grow up uh, for comics and pop culture stuff. Yeah, in what way? Well, I mean, for one thing, you can drive around the whole state in literally a day. 
So once you get a car, if you're hunting for old comic books or whatever, you know, there's, it's a fairly like urban and suburban state. So there's a decent number of comic book stores and you can drive around to all of them and find what you're looking for. Not to mention like I was from Jersey. I loved comics. So like the first time I was reading like a wizard magazine and they were like, yeah, this guy, Kevin Smith, made this movie called Dogma. And I was like, I don't know anything about this guy, but I like comics and there's a there's a dude with a Hellboy T-shirt in this poster, so I'm going. And uh, I forgot about that. Yeah, and like that's I mean the, those were some of my first experiences with like filmmaking and like hockey. I became a fan of because of Kevin Smith. And yeah. what was your first comic? Do you remember, or what did you first get attracted to? I my first two comics I very distinctly remember. My mom brought home from a flea market. It was a, an issue of Fantastic Four. And some random, like, Terminator first issue from, like, Dark Horse. <laughs> yeah. And the the Fantastic Four thing was, like, Malice, which is, like, when Sue Storm goes, like, dark. She turns into, like, this, like, BDSM, like, she wears, like, a full, like, dog collar and mask with spikes. And she goes evil. And it, like, makes the very specific point of, like, oh, she's the most powerful of the Fantastic Four. And I think it also had, like, the grown-up version of Franklin Richards, who was, like, a rad, like, future fighty telepath guy. I missed out on so much just because I only read, like, certain runs of comics. Like, I don't know. I (laughs) I have such large gaps. I think that's the right way to go. Like, that's how I do it now. I think when you were a kid, part of what appealed to you about comics, and it's, you know, I, I had a thing the other day with a friend of mine where I was like, you know, I don't like horror why am I a Lovecraft fan? And he was like, because it's an interconnected universe and it's full of like weird secret knowledge. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's what comic books are. It's like the first time you open one, you're like, I don't know what this is, but it's full of stuff and I need to know about all of it. Right. There's a clue to another thing that references another issue that you're like, well, I guess I can just follow up with this. And then you feel like you're in part of a secret club, which is weird now that it's such a huge thing. Right. And you had shibboleths. You had like little ways of, of signaling each other. Like now everyone wears a Green Lantern t-shirt. But when you saw someone with a t-shirt in high school, you would just grab them and be like, I don't know who you are, but we are best friends now. Yeah, it's crazy. I remember specifically having a Green Lantern shirt. It was one of my favorite shirts. I would say most people did not know what it was. Sometimes I'd get like a cool shirt. I like whatever that design is. I'm like, well, it's a Green Lantern <laughs> Uh, but now it's like, yeah, I went to Civil War, uh, like, to see that. And then it was just every shirt was Captain America. Yeah. And for the most part. It's weird to me. It's weird that there are Captain America fans out there, to like, publicly everywhere. Right. And it, it gets, like, I start doing these weird things in my head where I realize that, like, the reason I will buy a shirt is because it's such an esoteric reference that I'll be like, well, if somebody picks this out, like, they're worth knowing. It's interesting because, like, part of it is, like, uh, whether we do it on purpose or not, like, the cultural capital of, like, being on the inside of something in, like, a small community. Uh, there's something that feels very special about that. So, like, the fact that these big heroes are all out there, it's kind of like, okay, like... People don't know who the creeper is still. Right, no, it's it's absolutely true. And it's like on the one hand you don't want to be a gatekeeper. Like that's very important to me. Right, that, anyone uh, can love Batman. Exactly. But on the other hand, it's like it was so important and it was a it was a, a thing to hide in and, and find connections with and you know, and the truth is like 
you still on some level want to seek out the people who would have found it naturally. So it's, you know, it's an interesting kind of world we find ourselves in now. Yeah. Well, why don't we dive into Batman the Animated Series? Absolutely. How did you discover that show? What was your first experience with it? So, you know, I was thinking about this today, like, like in prep for this, and, um, you know, I watched everything. Like, of course, like, it, you were a kid, cartoons were just cartoons. Yeah, you were a big cartoon guy, I mm-hmm. imagine. Yeah, like, everything from Eek the Cat to, like, Power Rangers, I watched it all. Um, I still have, like, this very fond memory of, like, there was, like, an 8 o'clock... Like, they did an X-Men and a Power Rangers, and it was the first Zed episode, and it was, like, the Lady Deathstrike Wolverine episode. Yeah. And, and I, like, and watching it at, like, eight, you were like, this is so special. Like, they aired it, like, on adult TV. Uh, but, but I was thinking, you know, it's interesting because Batman was not my favorite then. It was just another really good show that I watched. Yeah. But Spider-Man and X-Men, like, those were my favorites. Uh, And the more you go on, the more this one show just starts to stand out around all the other shows. Because it's just so special, you know, to the point where, like, I guess the first season or two, I would have been pretty young. By, like, the Batman Superman Adventures and Static Shock and stuff... I would have been, you know, fifth grade, and I was still watching it after school. Yeah, I think we're roughly the same age, if not the same age. Yeah. I was for sure watching all of those cartoons past the time when most other people I knew dropped off. Like, any kid you knew was watching Batman the Animated Series if they grew up with it in elementary school. But I think new Batman, Superman Adventures, all that stuff, that's kind of where people fell off, at least when I reconnect with them now. Did you, like, how did it air where you were growing up? Uh, I grew up here in L.A., and it it aired after school. Okay. what I remember. I'd rush home, you know, for most of the time. I think it was still, like, 4 o'clock, 4.30. 4 o'clock, that's how it was for us, yeah. usually do back-to-back episodes, Mm -hmm. and I think there was, like, one new episode when it came to, like, Batman, Superman stuff. But I, I think it was still like around four o'clock when it was the animated series too, and there were Saturday morning ones as well. Man, it all kind of blurs. Yeah, uh, I, I don't remember. I remember it was originally on Fox Kids and then moved to WB. Well, I mean, it must be so weird for the people who actually worked on it because for us, it's just our childhood. But right. like when you think of what a, a an actual span of time those shows ran, like between Batman to Justice League, it, what is it like? 15 years? It's insane. It's a lifetime. Or yeah. half a life. Not, not a lifetime, but like a childhood, I guess. Right. Uh, like, you, so much changes <laughs> in that amount of time, especially when you're that young. I think that's one of the things that weirds out the writers that I talk to. They're like, oh my god. <laughs> uh, well, it's kind of like a time bomb is the way they've described it. We don't really know what we're doing until it happens later, and then we see how it affected people. Did you... You just interviewed Stan Berkowitz, right? Yeah. So the, the first time I met Stan... For the first couple years, this is what I say anyway, I have no idea what Stan would say. I don't think Stan liked me because I would walk up to Stan and be like, oh my God, I love your stuff. Like, you know, he did the Injustice Gang two-parter and like he did Public Enemies and I was like, oh, you're a really good writer. And I think every time he would be like, all right, I'm going to stand over here now. (laughs) And then it was literally the first time I walked up to him and I was like, hey, Stan, like what the fuck's going on? That he was like, ah, all right, I like you now. <laughs> and I think that, like, I've I've sort of had time to think about it in the little bit of time that I've been animation writing. But in a weird way, it's like every writer wants a response to their work. But in animation, it's like you put it out there, and then you have to wait 
15 or 20 years. And when it finally does come back around and you get a response from the audience, it's like the specter of death. Right. It makes you feel old because it's toward kids that are, yeah. Yeah. It's aimed at, at children. Uh, it's, it's very strange. I mean, you are going to have that happen one day. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hopefully I'll do a little bit of comics work and a little bit of live action work so it won't feel so awful. Oh, I just mean, yeah. like, uh, I think it's a cool thing. I, I think, like, just that it's a positive thing. If anything, it's just like you'll have that with Justice League action and, you know, Ben 10 and all of this stuff. Uh, but it's it's funny to know that that will happen. Yeah, and I mean, people that they're they're going to like it's going to mean the world to them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you hope God one hopes like that's the whole point to do it right is like you know I think everybody's like wow they're fucking kids like you you the Simpsons joke where they're uh, they're doing the um, the focus group testing mm-hmm. on Itchy and Scratchy. Yeah, it's like how many kids would like Grounded Adventures and how many would you like Far Out like Space Wizards and they say yes to both. They raise their hand. Yeah, yeah. And then the guy comes out and he's yelling. He's like, "What do you know? You're kids. That's why you're kids because you're dumb." And it's like I think there's really an attitude of like kids don't know the difference. And it's like a I think that's not true, but b I also think that that it definitely becomes true with time that like the wheat separates from the chaff. And you go back to Animaniacs and you go like, that was Liza Minnelli. Like, that just wasn't a crazy lady. That was, like, they, they were teaching me about old Hollywood and they were making smart jokes. And and now I can go back to it throughout different generations of my life. Absolutely. I, I mean, I hate when cartoons talk down to kids. Uh, I think there's a way to still be accessible to kids and tell a good story. And it's it's so frustrating when it's because there are those people that you meet that are like yeah you know it's a kid show I didn't really put anything into it I was like what are you talking about (laughs) don't you it's that much more meaningful because it's a brain that's developing yeah they're going to be excited about this this will be something that's much more important than anything else yeah it's very funny because there was uh, you know a friend of mine's working on a a a short for Justice League action right now uh, that uh, involves the Joker going to like a kid's birthday party, right? And we had a conversation about like, well, how does the Joker feel about kids? And he was trying to find an angle and he was like, well, maybe the Joker hates kids because they're like too easy a laugh. And I was like, yeah, but that's not really true, right? Like the the real truth of kids is that they're the world's toughest audience because if they hate something, they will just immediately tell you and they not give. Four hundred percent. Right? They don't. I can curse, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Kids do not give two fucks. Uh, they will immediately just be like, you suck, get oh, off the stage. Kids are blunt, and sometimes uh, the only people who will tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I guess, what, I mean, before we even dive more into Batman, just what is it like to work with these people that shaped your childhood? Like, what's it, the experience like? It's the most incredible thing, and at the same time also becomes banal in a way where you have to remind yourself on a regular basis um, you know, it never becomes thoroughly banal because you're still working. Like at a certain point you stop working for like the story editors on our show are Jim Krieg and Alan Burnett. Mm-hmm. And Alan was the original head guy on Batman animated and Jim Krieg, uh, ran the green lantern animated show and did, uh, justice league flashpoint. And is just one of the best writers I've ever met. And at a certain point, they stop being the Alan Burnett that did Batman and become your friend Alan, but they never stop being the best writer you've ever met. And so that stays intimidating, but at least the, the fan part of it goes away. Right. 
Yeah. You can't uh, otherize somebody as a celebrity forever. Otherwise, you're not treating them like a human being. Right. It becomes a real bummer for them. Like, it really does. Yeah, of course. Because they're like, okay, cool. Can we get past this part of things? Right. Uh, that's awesome. Have you gotten cool stories out of people? When did you pester them about things? I have pestered them nonstop about I would hope so. everything. Yeah. And yet one of the things I absolutely love about this is I felt like I wrung everything out of them. And then I'll listen to like Dan Reba, who's a pal. He directed my Ben 10 Omniverse episodes and he comes on your thing. And I'm like, I have not heard half of this stuff. I think having a forum where, like, somebody is prepared to just only talk about that probably helps. Yeah. Uh, And it means that you don't have to, like, keep asking questions. Because if I was just there conversationally, I don't know if I'd ask, like, 100 questions about Batman in a row. I would be associate Like, people would be like, all right, uh, see you later, man. I still do it. I don't care. Oh, don't get me wrong. I would find a way to do it. Uh, He's the nicest guy in the world. Dan Reba? Oh, Dan is so sweet. Like, absolutely just wonderful. He was a delight. (laughs) Yeah, it's like you've had Dan on, you've had Alan, uh, you've had, um, uh, I mean, you've had a ton of people that I know and work with. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's awesome. How, how, how has that translated to working on a new DC show? So, well, I mean, so, so I told you the story and like, I think this is kind of funny. It's like, um, people ask us if we're in the like Timverse continuity and you know obviously it is not my place to say I am not the arbiter of stuff like that um, but like nobody told me one way or the other so I definitely wrote as though we were like I would occasionally just change the name of like Penguins Club or like the opening date of like a, you know they'd be like the Iceberg Lounge is about to open and I'd be like renovated reopening because like <laughs> I in my build head it into the continuity <laughs> yeah it's, it was so important to me that just like those that there be a just for narcissism's sake that there be a connection between those stories that I love and these stories that we were telling and there absolutely are like tonally they are uh, yeah talk a little bit about the tone of the show in. I know that you can't talk about everything. Yeah. Obviously, it's not out publicly, so whatever you can say about it, I think people would be excited to hear. Well, I mean, like, I think the easiest thing that I can do is, like, without really officially saying anything, I can confirm the details that you already know in a way that, you know, makes you think the right way about the show, which is, like, it's called Justice League Action. You know, it's um, it's obviously, you can tell from the character designs, it's going to have a real sense of fun, and you can tell from just... Jim Krieg's work, he's one of the funniest writers I've ever known. So it's going to have a lot of comedy in it. But, you know, it's also an action show. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you look at episodes, without saying anything that our show does, if you look at Justice League Unlimited episodes, like, you know, The Greatest Story Never Told. There's a Booster Gold story. Yeah, I think you can absolutely do things that are not... You know, I think people are worried about Teen Titans Go. I love Teen Titans Go. I think it's fantastic. But they're really worried, like, oh, are we going to get, like, the Adventure Time version of Justice League? And, you know, I don't think they have to be worried about that. That's what I would say. Yeah, you say it seems like it's more of an emphasis on action, but also good character. Yeah, I mean, definitely that's... I uh, Speaking just for myself, that is something that I would want to bring to everything. And not that Teen Titans Go doesn't have good character, but, you know... Definitely, I think the Justice League really lends itself to... I mean, look, you can just look at the images that have been released and see how big that cast is Mm -hmm. and see what happened between Justice League and Justice League Unlimited when they made the cast that big. 
and then know that we're starting from that point. Let me sneak in a fan question. <laughs> uh, so, somebody said, looking over the promotional poster for Justice League Action, the background of the poster shows pencil sketches for characters like Plastic Man, Zatanna, and The Question. How deep is the roster of characters in this version of Justice League compared to JLU? It is... I, I don't know if we're deeper than JLU, but um, we're probably getting there. Uh, it's pretty, pretty deep. Because it's not just the characters, but it's the characters that surround the characters. So, you know, I'm not confirming anything, but if you're going to have Superman, you're probably going to go to Metropolis, and you're probably going to meet Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane. And if you're going to do other heroes, you're going to go to their places and meet their guys. So you end up with, with quite a deep bench. Now, is it going to be kind of, I guess, in the vein of like JLU style stories and that it's a few heroes per episode and it's like a rotating roster? I mean, that would certainly be a, a way to do it. Um, let's see, what can we say here? Like, I... I, I there... There is There are certain requirements in doing animation, uh, and this is true on every show, in terms of the kind of characters that you want to push and the kind of toys that you want to sell. Right. Uh, so, and I mean, generally speaking, you turn into a Justice, tune into a Justice League show, you want to see the pillars. You want to see Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, just looking at how big the roster is, there is absolutely room for spotlight character stories, uh, but never drifting too far from, I think, the guys that we all want to see. Cool. I, I, I am excited because I think most people are excited because there are returning voices from that Timverse that, like, I think that is something that goes a long way with the old... The old fans like us. Uh, have you gotten to sit in on any voice sessions or see things? Oh man, I've sat. I've sat in on voice sessions. It was the best. Yeah. What is that like as a fan of those people growing up, seeing your words come to life? I mean, Conroy curses a lot. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. In the show, it's all in continuity for yeah. Justice League action. He, Batman says fuck all the time. I mean, let's see. So so we've revealed Conroy. We've revealed Hamill. Uh-huh. They've talked about James Woods as Luthor. Yep. And they've talked about Diedrich Bader as uh, Booster Gold. I believe that was, yeah, all in that big press release. Okay. So uh, there was a... I had written a line into a script that was um, G's. And uh, Bader goes... Can you guys say geez? And, you know, it's kind of... People don't really think about the limitations of writing for kids TV. But we all look at each other and we go, yeah, I think we can say geez. And he's like, well, it's short for Jesus. Like, in nine years of the Drew Carey, Drew Carey show, we were never allowed to say geez. We could say butt weasel, but not geez. And, uh, and I was like, all right, just make it butt weasel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is interesting. Like, you'll hear, even watching, like, old... Cartoons like they won't they won't say like ah oh, Jesus they're like oh heavens yeah oh yeah oh yeah they'll allude to some sort of religious place but not Jesus himself and it's really nice when you get a show that will let you just bite the bullet and say kill because it's really awful to be writing Kingpin like that's the one I remember from growing up is the Kingpin was always like I have to destroy Spider Man it's like you're a hood you're sitting there you're like so like emotionally yeah. like how am I supposed to go at this problem do you want me to 
Like, do you want you want me to just ruin him? Like, what? Uh, how do I put this another way? I would like to obliterate <laughs> Spider-Man. Does that make it any clearer? So, like, like financially, like okay. we need no, to. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, let's rewind for a second. Kingpin, rewind. Uh, God, yeah. So we got Spider-Man. He's bad. I don't like him. So we would like to do bad things to him. Yeah, it, it feels like I don't understand fully what you want me to do to Spider-Man. Like, I know it's bad, yeah. Uh, well, I have one more question from a fan. Just, I, I think we already answered it, but will there be any direct storyline continuations from previous DCAU shows in general? Or is Justice League action entirely self-contained? I mean, the characters will be the characters you want to see. And that's the best answer to that, right? Cool. Is, uh, you know, uh, Booster Gold feels like Booster Gold. You know, Batman feels like Batman. Well, I think that's what people like about that DC animated universe that came beforehand, uh, is that they feel like the iconic versions of those characters. So I imagine growing up on that kind of stuff, you're going to pull the best from everything when you're putting together an ensemble show where you get to play in a sandbox of great characters. It is it is pure. Like, it is, for lack of a better word, like, platonic. Um, like, in that, like, like the you've got a chair, and then you've got the best like heavenly version of a chair mm -hmm. uh and i i find myself becoming more of a dc fan as i grow up because marvel was all about soap opera yeah and when you were a kid you were just like oh these storylines are amazing right right because teens love drama mm -hmm. like that kind of angsty drama like i fucking love spider-man especially the x-men too like that's why you connected to them yeah but you go to dc and, you know, it's 10, it's 15 years later, and hopefully, if you're doing it right, it's like a diamond in the light, and you're getting a new story, and you're turning it, and you're seeing it through a new facet. But, like, you open that book, the promise is there, which is, like, Batman's gonna be Batman. And the cartoon shows have done that so well over the last two decades. Just yeah. probably better than anybody else, not to, like, like rag on publishing. But they, they are perfect versions. Well, there's something about the consistency that's required for a cartoon. I feel like comics or any sort of publishing and, like, movies, they're taking bigger chances, at least, in, like, you know, taking stabs at different versions of the character. Uh, they have to keep updating themselves. And I feel like, at least in animation, it's like you kind of want the purest form to sell that toy. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's like, it's, it's kind of an amazing magic trick to put Batman in a different locale and environment and suddenly it feels completely different and yet it's the same character it's like batman on justice league uh at least the way Dwayne did it uh and by the way like i sort of came into the industry trained by a lot of the people that and Dwayne, Dwayne mcduffie trained. is who you're talking about yeah Dwayne mcduffie yeah um the the first people to get me work after my uh boss on thunderbirds and generator rex and slugterra guy named rob hoagie um the first people to to hire me and in fact, the people to get me that job with Rob uh, were Charlotte Fullerton, which is Dwayne's wife, uh, now widow, and uh, Matt Wayne, his best friend. Yeah. And even Jim Krieg, who runs Justice League, was one of Dwayne's other very close friends. Uh, so I was trained by a lot of the people that Dwayne trained. And looking at what he did there, where it's that character is consistent, and yet Dwayne gets his hands on him, and he's like... I want to see Batman in the mess hall eating lunch and seeing other characters rib him about, like, having a crush on Wonder Woman. Oh, and it was so satisfying to watch. I mean, we've already seen him as, like, the cool guy. Yeah. Seeing him interact with a group of friends is an entirely different facet, but it still felt true. Yeah, it's, it's somehow 
more sitcom-y, and I don't mean that. I know Dwayne wouldn't that think of that as an insult, so I don't think of it as an insult. Yeah. It is somehow more sitcom-y, and yet exactly the same character. No, I don't think it's an insult at all. I think what sitcoms do well when they're really good is they create a shorthand for making you feel like you're on the inside of an inside joke. Yeah. And I feel like that's what it felt like when you were watching those Justice League scenes, especially, like, the farther into the series they got. It was a family, and it was great. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, uh, God, who talked about this recently? But somebody was talking about the fact that television is inherently more intimate than film because it comes into your house. That on some level, every television show is about family because you're inviting it into your living room. So it has to be about family. Yeah, it's there. I mean, now it's like on our computers and I'm watching, you know, you're bringing it to bed with you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like I'm sitting there falling asleep with my family on my lap. <laughs> uh, that's what, that's how you used to do it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. When I grew up, it was always, it was like mom, dad, your sister, they just all lay down on top of you. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'd be crushed. And, you know, obviously I do have, I have adamantium legs at this point <laughs> because the bones were crushed and it only seemed like the natural progression of well things. it also it just helps for warmth like oh. lower heating bills it's amazing <laughs> guys if you have 400 million dollars and uh you're able to get kidnapped <laughs> yeah oh, you're talking about tv on your lap not adamantium legs oh so i forgot <laughs> so this is the end to that that language story right yes so uh so he points this thing out it's like 20 minutes later and you know Conroy just has this sort of paternal kind of style to him. Like, no matter what, it if it has him or Hamill or both, it's like a continuation of his house, and he kind of treats it like it's his house. Yeah, you know? he feels like the arbiter of the room. Yeah, in a very good way. It's like he's trying to make everybody feel welcome. So, you know, he sets the, the pace and the rhythm of things. Yeah. And so, you know, another... 20 minutes go by and he just leans forward in a perfect Batman. He's motherfucker. Right. And then, and then he's like, can, can we say motherfucker? And it's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. You're good. <laughs> like we can't say geez, but we're, we're totally allowed to say. Yeah. Motherfucker. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. Eight to 10 year olds love this. It's also cause, um, this, this reminds me of a funny, so I had written like BRB into a script. Right. And, uh, Diedrich was like, I don't know, do people actually say BRB out loud? And it was like a legitimate question, right? So like every baby boomer in the room is like turning to every millennial in the room and we're going like, yeah, yeah, they, they kind of say it out loud, you know? Uh, which led to later on in the script, I had written like a from Batman, like a, you know, literally like in a comic book, it would be TT yeah. and you would totally understand like what that meant, right? But in a script, that kind of onomatopoeia is maybe a little more rare. Uh-huh. So literally, we got to the Conroy moment. And with the perfect, like, this is what a consummate professional he is. With a perfect, straight Batman face, he just leans in and he goes, T.T. <laughs> we, we all just crack up. And he's like, I, I, I just assumed you knew what you were doing. <laughs> That's amazing. I have a question about that kind of stuff, like, on the BRB end of things. Like, what do you... I, I don't know if you have notes to, like, you know, obviously cater it towards an audience of, mm -hmm. you know, kids and, like, what they're into. Like, how do you balance that kind of stuff? What I love about, like, some of my favorite cartoons is how universal they feel. Like, it sticks out when somebody says, as if, on Batman the Animated Series, even though I love it. Like, do you go out of your way to 
kind of give it a sense of like what's cool now uh, for yourself, for other people, or do you try to make it feel kind of like an any when? Well, it's so it's an interesting sort of, I, and I mean, I think that goes beyond like kids TV, right? Like that is a dilemma faced by every artist creating any media. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing about Booster is obviously he's such a sort of shallow and facile and like pop culture obsessed character. Right. He would be covered in NASCAR stickers if he could. Exactly. I think he is inside. I'm pulling that image from something. Yeah. I think that's from like Jurgens around or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But like, no, but like he would totally be in there like watching the Kardashians and, you know, um, and yet you don't want to go too far because you do want it to age in a way where 10 years from now it feels right. Um, you know, like I can speak about this, like just generally as a writer, yeah. but like, I, like, when, when Whedon went to go start writing Buffy, he, like, he was like, okay, maybe I should look around and see what, like, teenagers talk like. And he just found that all the teenagers talked like Heathers anyway. So he was like, you might as well just make it up. Uh, but the, the one thing that you do do is you, like, Xander and Willow don't reference the movies that a 16-year-old would watch. Ever. Like, they reference Terminator, they reference mm -hmm. Star Wars, they reference Indiana Jones, because we already know that those things are classics. So, really, every teenager, it's like, it's something to make fun of that every teenager, in a way, speaks like the voice of a baby boomer writer. But on the other hand, it guarantees that when you go back 10 years later, you're all right. And I remember Brian Bendis talking about the fact that they almost gave Peter Parker like a limp biscuit hat in Ultimate Spider-Man. Good God. Right, exactly. Oh like that would have aged so badly. Oh no. <laughs> there's an there's an alternate timeline where that's what we read. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Ultimate Spider-Man is one of the things that I did uh, that got me back into comics for a while. Oh, I love that book that whole so Ultimate much. Universe. I mean, Ultimate's Ultimate. I mean, Ultimate Spider-Man. Truthfully, that was the one. When they talked about bringing Vincent D'Onofrio into the cinematic universe, my first thought was. Young man, did you web my feet to the floor? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's like, what satisfaction could that possibly grant you? It's, it's like, see, that's the difference between you and me. One of my favorite anything. <laughs> uh, well, I know we talked a little bit about this off mic, but like how something has leaked about another casting yes. in uh, Justice League action that I feel like is a nice transition. So you... I'll let you share the news. Uh, well, I feel like we can share it because he did say, yeah, uh, exactly. ironically enough, in a podcast, <laughs> uh, Brent Spiner is our Riddler. Which is very cool. If those of you don't know who Brent Spiner is, he played Data on Star Trek The Next Generation and I believe was murdered mercilessly by an alien in ID4. And is the best, the best version. It's actually really funny you point that out because I do think like one of the first things I thought when they were like, we're going to get Spiner is I was like, oh, Data plus that crazy scientist. <laughs> yeah. Because those are the two swings for Nigma, right? Uh, and And very interestingly, I think like, you think great Riddlers, it's like obviously you have Gorshin and you have, it's John Glover. Yeah, yeah. in the animated series. And uh, I think Spiner is the best one I've ever seen. Oh, what makes him so great? Because he, he takes both of those things and synthesizes it into something that is obviously not completely new if you've watched Spiner perform before. But just by speaking, it, it must have been the way people have felt when they saw Hamill do the Joker, huh. where you're just like, there is nobody, there's nobody I can imagine doing a better version of this. And he gives you arrogant, and he gives you fey, and he gives you manic, and he gives you kind of cold and removed, and he switches between those poles so quickly. Uh, it really is, I just think, 
the best version I've ever seen. And I'm obsessed with the character. Yeah, I mean, can we say that you... I, yeah, I wrote the, um, the episode. Which is very cool. I feel like let's organically transition into uh, the episode of Batman we'll be talking about, which is the first Riddler episode, his origin in the animated series. If you're so smart, why aren't you rich? Man, why do you always ask me that question? Uh, I'm telling you I'm working on it. Look, I I will always ask you that, and it will not be the title of an episode. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just rewatched it for whatever, the umpteenth time, like a couple hours ago, just to refresh my memory. And boy, did I forget how much of it was about, like contracts <laughs> and uh, things that I that went over my head as a kid. I mean, I think that's totally like w- interesting to talk about for this episode is it is it's about like a freelancer and work for hire, which I think is very interesting when you consider the fact that because it's animation obviously it was written by a freelancer uh, or at least somebody on a work for hire contract. Right. But also when you consider that like we're in the world of comic books And obviously work for hire is hugely important. So it's like there's shades of Bill Finger there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Who was famously kind of cut out of making a bunch of money from the creation of Batman. And our mutual friend David Weiss wrote this one. Oh, I don't know if we're mutual friends. He's your friend and I (laughs) like his work. Uh, And he's part of this episode. And, you know, I, I would not want to stress this point too intensely because he has very good relationships with them and he hasn't, you know, complained publicly about it. But, you know, literally just speaking from my point of view, you know, I've read the Ninja Turtle comic books and I watched the cartoon show growing up. And I think David gave those characters their distinct personalities, their backstories, the interpersonal dynamics that we expect from them, catchphrases that didn't exist before yeah. and that have recurred in every movie since. Like the, the, the most recent movie just had Bebop and Rocksteady in it. Those were created by David Weiss in, like, tribute to, like, the break-in boys of, like, the streets of New York City when he was living there. Um, and I, I, you know, it's not like he wrote this to diss those people, I'm sure. Yeah. But it is very interesting to think about the fact that Nygma is kind of getting the shaft the way so many creators have gotten the shaft Absolutely. before. Absolutely. It's like, I created this thing that you're profiting off of. Uh, and then, you know, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? As opposed to him pretty early in the episode. But it's crazy, I don't know, that an animated show aimed at kids, and this is always the thing that I'm talking about on this podcast, kind of just kicks things off with something about just people in the workplace. Well, I mean, right from the start, one of the things that, like, surprised me as an animation professional is, like, that opening is so quiet. And so filmic, like it's like Nigma gets up on an elevator, gets off the elevator, he's doing, he's a, crossword. doing a crossword it's a puzzle. Long shot of him just filling in a crossword, walking into a door, and it's like every single frame of that required background elements, yes. required uh, character designs. You know, there's a guy emptying the trash next to him, dropping his nameplate in there, or like you know the thing on his door. I think it's crazy too, like because you know people don't think about this who aren't in animation or maybe even. Even if they watch cartoons, but yeah, different background elements for every angle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like live action where we can just move the camera. It's there's an entirely new painting or drawing or whatever. And and to fight for that pace, despite cost, and when you're not gaining anything sort of tangible, at least, and when you're supposed to be doing an action adventure cartoon for children, and it's so easy for people above you to come in and say like, I don't get it. It's boring. Like why? 
and and yet it grounds you so like it feels like an old movie like a yeah. Billy Wilder film or something oh I love the way we kind of pan and we see his boss beforehand like it's his head is kind of cut off as like Nigma's walking to his door it's like this is elegant as fuck <laughs> yeah and like my first thought is like he looks like William Buckley or Tucker mm. Carlson they always go to those types of people for yeah. reference <laughs> it's kind of amazing it also, Enigma sucks, right? Like, immediately, like, even though I sympathize with him as a creative, he's so <laughs> full of himself immediately. It's so interesting that you bring that, because, like, what I kept going back to is, like, I loved this character as a kid. Yes, me too. He was I lo- he was amazing. And it's like you, like, like I got bo- so bored with Turtles. Don't ever tell David. But I used to get so bored. I watched every episode of Turtles, but, like, so quickly as a kid, I feel like I would default to, man, I hope Shredder gets to make turtle soup this time. Like, just just once. Just for a difference, right? And it's so weird. It's like, why was I so taken with Nigma? And and I still am to this day. But what about being a kid? You know, this, this jerky, inflated, just, like, wordy douchebag. I wonder if it is... I don't know about you, but growing up as, like... Not that I was, like, severely bullied. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for sure, you know, was a nerdy kid. Uh, so there is something you can identify with as seeing the smart person being taken down by the, you know, whatever, like, the business jock. And he's pretty fucking stylish when he finally, like, debuts himself. Oh, hell yeah! That is a good look. It was and a great I, suit. I was so disappointed with the... Most of those redesigns when they reboot are better. But Nigma's, uh, while I appreciate the Gorshin reference... Yeah, I, I wasn't a fan. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know... Yeah, I wasn't a fan of that redesign at all. Interestingly, also, I can say Riddler is, like, one of the hardest characters to write. Right, it seems to be the case. And I think you can see it, like, in the show that, like, once they reboot, we never see Nigma except in a couple of, like, like, he's in, like, Joker's Millions and he's in Nighttime but really just as like... He's a cameo. He's, a, he's just a joke, usually. Yeah. He's just like, hey, the Riddler still exists. Because basing an episode around him, you have to write the riddles, and you have to figure out what he wants and what he's doing, and it's got to be more than just, I'm robbing a bank. Yeah, I mean, famously, they did not want to write a bunch of episodes. I think Alan Burnett has talked about, like, it, wasn't, it was a character they avoided, if possible. Interesting. Um, well, let me ask you this. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to writing Riddler riddles, yeah, um, I know you can't talk about too many details, but uh, how did you how did you approach things? And like, did you see anything when rewatching? If you're so smart, that kind of stood out to you as like, oh, like <laughs> we that's been done before, or or it's just like that's they approached that in a way that I wouldn't have approached it or would. I mean, what I think was really interesting comparing because the animated series is so fundamental in so much of the casting of so many of these villains. I think, honestly, more than... It, it, for all the credit it gets, sometimes even more than it gets credit in comics for just really synthesizing some of this stuff. Yeah. And it's like taking modern Nigma as we've seen him in, like, Hush and the animated series and how it's come about over 20 years and comparing it to this episode, it's really interesting to watch them kind of finding their way. And I think one of the big things they're finding their way on is, like, do we do the Gorshin stuff? Because the Batman 66 kind of like reaching riddles, like those are really good gags. But when you're just like, ah, you see it's corn and another word for corn is maze. 
And I, you know, it's not knocking anybody who did it because that gag works. I love it in 66. But like, ultimately, it's something that you see them doing less and less and less of as they go along. Yeah, it was interesting watching this because I think what seemed self-serious and intelligent when I watched it when I I was younger is feels tonally a little bit sillier now. And I don't think it's intentional. I don't think it's the fault of, you know, David or even the crew behind it. It's just we've seen so much more since then. Uh, But I think it was like a big deal and we forget that there was such a backlash against the 60s Batman from the people who were even making this show. A lot of the people... You know, I'm, there were definitely fans, but there were people who were like, this is not my Batman. Well, we didn't have to do the... We didn't have to live through it. I think if we lived through it, right. our relationship to that show would be at the very least complicated. And if we were like, you know, the ten people reading the book when nobody else was, obviously. Uh, there, there was a time when Batman was not cool at all. Uh, and so the fact that, like... You see this Batman calling out, like, I don't know whether to, like, you know, I think he calls it corny. Yeah, the puns. Or he's like, yeah, the worst thing about it is the puns. Right, exactly. And that's, like, you know, a commentary on, like, that 60s Batman Gorshin type Riddler. Oh, that's an interesting point. And I feel like at the time, that was like a, see, we're the cool version of this. We're treating this intelligently. Even if now we're looking back and we're like, oh, this is... Kind of silly in its own way as well. I love 66 Batman, so... And I oh, think my, too. <laughs> my favorite thing in some ways is that Robin must have been, like, kidnapped from, like, a young cryptographer's institute. <laughs> because every single time, it's Robin. Like, every... He's, he's just like, holy God, Batman, don't you see? It's elephants. And you're just like, I don't know how you got that, man. But it's never Batman. It's always Robin. No, which is what's so funny about it. Yeah. And then Robin... And then Batman always, like, knowingly, like... I see you got there, too. Good job. I also knew that it was as high as an elephant's eye. Oh, that's what I love. I mean, like, that superiority that Batman has to Robin in that series is, for sure, played up in such a funny way. Uh, Well, back to If You're So Smart. So, we have, like, the Riddler is reimagined as a video game developer. I love the style of video game that Robin's playing. I love that he's playing it on the back computer. Yeah, it's because I guess it's sort of, it's like King's Quest or, like... One of those old, like, like DOS text-based, yeah. It's it's interesting. Uh, and then we get to see, like, the physicalization of that later uh, with the Hand of Fate. I always wanted a hand action, like, to, you know, I wanted the Minotaur. I wanted all this stuff when I was a kid. So let me ask you this. How long do you think he spent building that mace? Yeah. Oh, you mean the Riddler? Yeah. Yeah, that was insane. Where did he get the technology to do that? And it must have been... So, I, like, I really paused and, like, thought about this. At a public the first carnival time. or at a public amusement park. Right. Well, it's... So, he his intention must have been to take Mockridge and put it inside, inside this maze. And the first time I watched this, I was like, does this track... Because he's like, he kidnaps Mockridge, and then he goes to the power plant, and the goon's like, but you already got the guy you want. And he's like, but now I have to kill Batman, because he knows who I am. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, so did he build the maze in, like, a day? But then I thought, like, no, he's obviously, he wanted to put Mockridge in the maze. And when you think about, and then he just sort of jukes, right? Like, Batman shows up, and he's like, okay, I'll put Mockridge at the center, and Batman and Robin can run the maze. Yeah. But when you think about that, that is such a devious revenge. That it's like, you stole my thing, you know nothing about it, and you don't appreciate it. And you've made money off it. So your lack of knowledge of it will be what kills you. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, that's what I love about the Riddler. <laughs> yeah, he's messed up. 
He really is, and, and it's like kind of masked behind this like fun and games mentality or, or this you know superficiality, I guess. Uh, I really I love this episode. I used to watch it over and over as a kid. Well, it's also as a kid that 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 maze. Like I was trying to figure that out too. I was like, what about this as a kid? Just captured my imagination, and I think it's the treehouse thing. Of, like, when you're a kid, you just want to build... Like, you would sit there and doodle secret bases all day mm-hmm. long. And it just... It really is great. Just, like, the sense of sprawling... Like, you get the sense that there are, like, 19 more things that Batman and Robin got past that we didn't even see. Oh, yeah. Well, they're, they're living the fantasy of what we all wanted as a kid, which is, can I play this board game, this video game, in real life? <laughs> um, now they get to run through it. And it's, like, this wish fulfillment. And also, like... A metal minotaur? Great! <laughs> I'm on board just in a gut level. Yeah, it's interesting. He must be really good with robotics to have built a giant metal robot. Yeah, it, it, definitely there, there are some like logic leaps that I didn't think about <laughs> when right. I was younger. I was just like, yeah, it's the Riddler. Yeah, of course he does this. <laughs> right, like he's good at hacking, but hacking is different from robot. It's like, does he freelance? Does he like... <laughs> Because this was the thought I had. This was the craziest thought. Is he's got the vanity plate as they drive away. Oh, the three questions. Yeah, and I was like, did he, in the two years when he dropped off the map, or however long it was, did he go to the DMV and get a vanity plate? Or did he, like, take over, like, a vanity pressing plate factory and make one up for himself? I feel like it's probably... Either way, it tracks for me is that <laughs> such a vain motherfucker. Right, yeah. <laughs> like, that's what... It, the Riddler is so self-obsessed. Right. That I love that it's... The, yeah, but the... the I, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, I, I love to forgive because <laughs> it's just... It's a cartoon and it's stylized, but I... What, what I do think they get away with nicely in this is that it is such a filmic show that the amount of time that's passing is kind of nebulous. I mean, I don't, honestly, I don't even think you need to forgive it. Like, the way I tend to think about this stuff is yeah. that it's all canon. Like, it all happened. So then the question is just like, when you sit down and think about how he got that license plate, is there a story there? Yeah. And so often the answer is like, weirdly, yes. Like, it's like, it's it's actually very interesting to me, maybe even more interesting in some ways, to think about Enigma waiting in line at the DMV and being like, oh, but it's going to be perfect. Oh, absolutely. Like, it's going to be the best getaway vehicle anyone's ever seen. Yeah. I mean, because then you're diving into the psychology of the character, too. Yeah. I love his design. We talked a little bit about that. Uh, we talked, I mean, he has that, like, kind of, uh, he has a giant Chinese finger puzzle he does uh which is one of the funniest moments where robin is trapped inside of it while it's on fire and batman's just shaking his head as he's like help let me out it's getting kind of it's getting hot in here and he's just watching nigma speed away and he's like (laughs) doing nothing about robin yeah despite the fact that robin literally just saved his bacon like two seconds before yeah sorry uh sorry you're suffocating and on fire yeah Uh, I love the Riddler. I love. I love the. I love the Riddler. It's just what I said uncontrollably. <laughs> I do love that the, those like mat, those paintings that we get in the end. I saw. I literally was going to call it the same thing, which is uh, the Fleischer Superman. Yeah. The painted cells. Like my three favorite shows are, are Fleischer Superman, Johnny Quest, and '90s Batman, and all three make use of painted cells with limited animation. Yep. And it's funny because you, you you look back and it, it's a little awkward. Like it's a little bit, it's an instant style shift and it's so cool and yet so kind of like 
unfinished. Yes, it's. I mean, it's drawing attention to it. Yes, in a way that is definitely taking you out of the reality of I'm watching a story. And it's it's for those who don't know, it's it's the end of Act One. It's the reveal and his eyes narrow behind the mask. Yep. Uh, and his mouth moves, but the rest of it is painted. And it's uh, it's it, it made me think in particular about the differences between this show and when they do the revamp, which I think in many ways was closer to the show Bruce wanted to make. Mm-hmm. And it's much more polished, but it lacks a certain aesthetic appeal. I miss those moments personally. Even later in the animated series before the revamp, we don't get them as much. Like, it really was early on, like, Two-Face, like the close-up of Two-Face with his eye just going back and forth. Or... And even sometimes just, like, the fact that perspective would be wrong, mm-hmm. like, the fact that things were a little off from from frame to frame. I don't know. Like, I think even on a subconscious level as a kid, it's making you go, like, someone made this. Yeah. And that's cool. There's something tactile and physical. Uh, yeah. Or you, or you can, you, I don't know, you can see that it was made. Mm-hmm. And, and it's gritty. It helps with the grittiness, you yeah. know? I mean, yeah, originally, you know, obviously they, they ditched it pretty, not that quickly, but, you know, painting everything on black uh, became difficult <laughs> after a while uh, in terms of, like, all the, you know, the show remaining dark. And that was, that was just something that I, I loved stylistically. Loved the red sky. Yeah. That looks good. Did they change, is that, did they paint it red and then go over that? Like, did no, they, they change the they way they did start, it? One of the famous things they did when they initially pitched the show uh, was the backgrounds, instead of painting on white, everything started as black and they would paint on top of that. And I think I read it in like a Modern Masters book about Bruce Tim. He talks about how there are like, I guess like... TV standard levels of blackness mm-hmm. that are allowed to exist until they cannot be seen and their show was too dark so they had to like digitally up it Wow! Um, which I think is pretty cool that they broke the rules of TV darkness I- <laughs> literally I, I, I owned that chip kid book oh, it's that great. coffee table but I, I stupidly gave it away to like a comic book artist I was collaborating with in high school and I went literally when I started listening to your show I was like I want that back and it's like $400 online really? it's crazy expensive it's wild yeah. That's such a bummer. Uh, it's, it's such a good book. I wish it was out there. I feel I know. like there's got to be another one coming out soon. Something else. There, there's so much Batman merchandise. Really nice. I mean, didn't Paul and Chip also collaborate on that, like, Batman in Japan thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would be, it'd be great. So hopefully there's, like, a republication of that, because it's just a beautiful art book. So I took, I took small notes as I was watching. Oh, if man. You wanna... Bring up those notes. Yeah. Um... I wrote down, because I think it's such a great Riddler line, which is, might we actually have a brain beneath that pointy cowl of ours? I love it. Yeah. Uh, Oh, so this was one I noted I thought was really weird. Oklahoma, rare pop culture reference that ties the show to a time frame. They almost always try to avoid that. What was it? Uh, Well, so the reference, like, corn that's high as an elephant's eye. Right, it's from the musical? It's from the musical Oklahoma, and Batman goes, a little bit before your time. And it's like, that is... That's a, kind of a mistake as far as I'm... Like, yeah. I would have avoided... 
Because one of the things I love about the show is like it's the 30s and today and the 50s. It's that like it's the, it's a wonderful life shows up in like Christmas with the Joker. Oh, that's a great point. But that's like one of the only I'm trying to think of any other pop culture references in the original series. And weirdly that one fits for me even though I'm sure that they have to be I don't know when. It's a much older film though. Is it? I don't even know when it's Oklahoma was made. Yeah, Oklahoma I feel like was 50s. Okay. This is me making that up on the spot. I was a musical theater nerd, uh, but it was not a musical that I ever liked. Yeah. So I don't know that much about it. I uh, think the only thing I know about it is the O. Oklahoma. Da, 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 da. Uh, what else? What else to get? What else do I have? Uh, uh, I wrote down Riddler stories are hard. <laughs> you know that from experience. Yeah. I wrote down that I think it's really interesting that the Riddler always works best when he fails. That, uh, that somebody told me recently that one of the things they did in the comics is like Riddler has, like, they spent like a year where like the Riddler had taken over Gotham. And to me, what's so interesting about the Riddler is he probably is almost as smart as Batman. Not quite as smart as he thinks he is. And that is essential to getting the character right, is he always has to fail in the end, and it always has to be just a little bit his fault. Yeah. Well, because usually it's his ego that gets in the way. Right. Uh, and it's like Ra's al can be deadly, the Joker can be deadly, even Two-Face, who, like, I think, again, is another one who's maybe, like, reach ex- exceeds his grasp, but, like... What is scary about Two-Face remains scary about Two-Face. Whereas in a way, like, what's scary about the Riddler also deflates the Riddler, which is, like, his pomposity. Oh, yeah. He'll always push it one step further. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And I love when he doesn't realize it in the end. He can't figure out what his... that that he was the problem all along. Though I will say, in this episode, uh, kind of a nice twist. Like, normally when you see villain on TV screen... They're almost always just, like, in the back Wizard of Oz it. Yeah. And the fact that it's like, all right, now to catch the... Ju-, and it's like, dude, I'm already on a plane. Yeah, he's gone. I love that. <laughs> I mean, the retribution that we as an audience get is watching a man terrified for his life that he's going to be murdered in, like, a noirish, expressionistic shot of him just huddle, huddling in bed. And Batman and Robin are, like, one step away from the Scooby-Doo laugh there. Where you- <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, uh, I, expect- I was going to laugh. <laughs> As it cut to this, I was like, that's crazy. He's definitely taking a lot of enjoyment in that man's just mental... Psychological misery. Ruin. Just destroyed. I did... I remember that. That was such a vivid memory as a kid. It it stuck with me. It was like a very scary feeling to know that somebody could come for you at any minute. Yeah. The retribution this guy got. And I think you get that as a kid, too, because you get the, like under-the-bed check routine, you know, the, like, closet, like, anything could be scary as a kid. Uh, But, yeah, I think it... it, So a friend of mine had this point about Batman Animated, which is that it was probably all of our first experiences with tragedy as narrative. Mm. Because you and I talked about this, is, like, superheroes are almost never protagonists, and certainly Batman is almost never the protagonist in these stories. Uh, almost always he is the antagonist because the villain is the one who wants something and will go to extraordinary lengths to get it. And then almost always ends up destroyed as a result. And Batman is kind of always the force that like, if not destroys him, 
stands in front of him and lets them destroy themselves. Yeah, the humanity of the villains is what we're tracking in the story. Like, usually they're what, you know, we see as a beginning, middle, end point. Batman is just kind of a constant. <laughs> and it's like, it makes me think of, like, old Twilight Zone episodes. Like, every one of these is, like, time enough at last. Where by the very end, it's just like, well, they got their comeuppance, you know? Oh, and those are the best versions of this series, I think. Yeah. Is when they feel like Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, I feel like Read My Lips feels like a very Twilight... It's the Scott That's the ventriloquist one? Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Um, yeah. So do you remember when we were talking about how um, every Batman villain represents, like, either a twist on Batman or a reflection of one of his qualities, like a way in which he could go too far? Yeah. Um, or, like, a counter-philosophy? So I just, like, very curiously, based on this one, kind of, like, made, like, a small list. And I was curious what you thought of it. Yeah. So, obviously, Joker, chaos. Yep. Mr. Freeze's isolation. Scarecrow is, like, a use and obsession with fear. Two-Face and Ventriloquist are about dual identity. Uh, Killer Croc, Clayface, Man Bat, all about choosing to become a monster or becoming one without choosing. Uh, Raisha Ghoul is elitism. Bane is self-mastery run amok because he's basically like a Batman, Doc Savage-y kind of guy mm -hmm. just without a sense of responsibility. Uh, Penguin is the flip side of Bruce Wayne because he, what he wants so desperately is everything that Batman doesn't even think about having. Um, and then David Weiss, like, so I had this theory for a long time and David Weiss was the one who helped me realize that Clock King is obsessed with planning because David wrote the first Clock King episode too. Yeah. And that he's as pathologically dedicated to the idea of removing the uncontrollable or unforeseen as Bruce is. Yes, he's like the taskmaster Bruce. Yeah, it's it's precision. And then this was my question for oh, and Mad Hatter's probably about control too, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Did you much. read did you read Gail Simone's Secret Six? Yes, not since, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago? He's Was it already 10 years? Yeah, he's literally addicted to hat in that yes. book. Yes. Which I think is the funniest idea. Is like, he is literally basically just a drug addict. Like, Mad Hatter in the animated series is like, I, the world is terrible and it scares me. And so I'm going to control everyone to make, like, a fantasy world that works for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is very similar to, like, Bruce. Like, obsessed with control. And it's just like, in a way... Like, it's this crazy idea that he's dealing with, which is, like, I can make sure no one's parents ever have to die again. Yeah. Um, so this was mine for you. What do Catwoman and Ivy represent? Oh, man. And is it repressed sexuality? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely something there about that. Uh, I don't know if they're, they're... I don't think they're the same. You don't... That's, that would be my other question. Yeah, definitely not. Because I think... Oh, man... Catwoman, I think, is indulgence. Uh, okay, all like, right. Uh, or at least she is a counterpoint for that. She's almost like Nietzschean. She's like, she's like, I am an, an uber woman, yeah. so I just take what I want. Yeah, and I think she she does it for the thrill, or at least like a lot of Catwoman is like, she's like, fuck it, I want this. Oh, that's great, because I, like, I truly do believe in Batman as thrill seeker. Yeah. Like, I really believe if he was a rational person, he There's would... There's an adrenaline to mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Uh, Ivy's tough. And maybe that... I'm, I'm trying to think. She... I feel like there's almost like a, a fastidious, like, single-mindedness to her. Okay. Uh, if you look at the best versions of Ivy, right? Like, or I don't even know, like, the fact that she only cares about saving plants and not 
you know, she doesn't care about humanity. There's like a, almost like a a cold delineation between things. Like that's her crime alley obsession. Yeah, but it, it that never really rang super true. It felt more like a gimmick to me. Yeah. Um, and then there is a sex. I mean, the sexuality is what's played up more than anything else. And I feel like that is something that she like. I don't know if she ever really brings it out in Batman, though. It is interesting, though, that like he's one of the few male characters in the hero mold that has completely buried this part of himself, as opposed to like usually old-style action heroes in the pulp mold sort of embody sexuality instead of repressing it, and that they, that she is the one person that can sort of literally be the threat of bringing it out in you. I guess so. There's almost like a weird Dom sub. <laughs> right. Like, right. Batman is like the Dom of everybody's like life. And with Ivy, she's like, no, I'm in control, motherfucker. <laughs> oh, that's right. Or just, or just the idea that like Batman hates the uncontrollable and like what's less controllable than a boner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Batman getting a boner like, uh-uh. Like high school boner like where Batman's like holding a backpack over his crotch and he's puberty. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm just hunching for no reason. I gotta go. That's why every time Commissioner Gordon turns around, he's gone. Yeah, it's because he's he just, getting one of those... He popped a tent. <laughs> yep, and he has never dealt with it, so he's, he's still like a teenage thing. Oh my God. Yeah, I think, I think Poison Ivy for him, yeah, is a teenage boner. Uh, I do think that freeze is more than isolation, though. What do you think it is? Uh, I think it's inability to let go. It's a, you know like okay you know, yeah you know like at least the Nora version of freeze is like this obsession with like holding on to the past. Yes, the way that Batman is holding on to his parents, he's holding on to Nora. It's like no, dudes, you need to move on. It's, I always think of uh, Sub Zero. I think it's in Sub Zero when he does that thing where he's like. Uh, your surrogate father and your surrogate son, your yeah. whole surrogate family. And I'm pretty sure I didn't even know what the word surrogate meant at that point. I had to go like look it up. But like I definitely think there's something to that too of like is, is like what what he, what Freeze cares about is family and Batman has this very strange push and pull with family. Yes. And I guess it depends on the iteration of Batman, but have you read Glenn Weldon's book? No, what the is Cape's Crusade? No. Read it. It's great. It's like one of the best books on Batman I've read recently. Uh, it just came out. It's basically about the rise of nerd culture kind of anthropologically and how it's tied to Batman changing from, you know, Bob Kane, Bill Finger to, you know, the present. I don't think it covers Batman versus Superman. It just was, you know, coming out as that was being released. But he talks about like the core tenets of what he thinks makes Batman Batman. And what, you know, like most of them kind of stand out as like, yeah, that makes sense. I've thought about that. The last one was father. And I was like, oh, yeah. That is such a huge part of Batman is he is a father. It he was... Oh, yeah, sorry. You go ahead. No, yeah, that's I mean, great. that's it. Uh, but I, I'd urge you to read it. It's great. And his obsession with his father. Yes. It was, it was a, a point that a female friend of mine made about Batman Superman in defense of it, that it is the first time Martha has ever been important. Usually Martha is just... And also, my mommy died when dad my died. My dad tried to stop things. Right. Her pearls were more important than her. <laughs> yeah. uh, we, we know the shot of her pearls falling. Right? Yeah. right. We know more, like, literally the thing we know most about this woman is she wore jewelry. Whereas we know, you know, Thomas, brilliant surgeon, uh, yeah, philanthropist, you know, cared about the city's poor. And they never talk about Martha. So it was nice, I guess, for once to be like, well, Batman loves his mommy, too. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, I mean, that's the core of Batman. He loves his mommy and his daddy. So you got you got really good answers for both of those. So this is the one last one that I'm curious about. Oh, God. We'll uh, see. What does Harley represent? And is it different than what the Joker represents? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a... Oh, man. Harley is like a... Keep in mind, I'm going to be stealing all of these for season two of Justice League Action. Right. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> I, think she's, I think she's a sense of play. I think it's like this balance of... I think it's carelessness. Not necessarily carelessness, oh. is different, but I think Harley is carelessness. I think she is... There's there's like a... There's a... Yeah, just playfulness about Harley that I think that makes her so attractive to us as a character. Um, that she's doing it for the fun of it. Um, she's not thinking. I think Harley is not thinking and Batman is the epitome of thinking and obsessing. You're good at uh, this. Well, hire me for Justice League Action <laughs> Season 2. <laughs> Uh, but I, I think, like, truly, that I, that's what I love. I mean, also, all I do is talk about this on a podcast, so it, it comes up a lot. And I, I really do think that she's that's what makes her such a great character, amongst other things. Well, I think what nails it about about what you said, and that's that's so interesting to me, is because when I think about every one of those sort of villains... For the most part, it's, you know, Harvey, you were my best friend. Like, we can bring yeah. you back from the edge, right? When he faces down against Rayshad Ghoul, there's this mutual Moriarty-Holmes, like, yeah. respect. Even with the Joker, it's kind of like, are we going to do this dance until we're both gone? It's like a, a recognition of, like, power and respect. Mm -hmm. And Harley is kind of the only villain that Batman just completely just does not give two shits about, looks down on every time. It's just like every well, I time. I don't think so. I don't think he looks down on her. But it's such like an eye roll kind of like. <sighs> I think he goes out of his way to help her more than, I mean, at least like there are, a few, you know, like what some of my favorite episodes. Sometimes yeah, I yeah. feel like she's kind of brushed off as like, oh, this loon. Mm -hmm. But what I do love about Batman is that he never gives up on her in the best episodes. Like if you watch... Like Harley's Holiday and Harlequinade or like, you know, those Deanie episodes that really dive into more of Harley than Batman, where they have to like kind of team up. What I love about it is that he doesn't, he's the only one who doesn't give up on her uh, in a weird way. Like he's trying to help her. And she's like, I don't need to be helped. Stop trying to control me. Yeah. Uh, and Which is like, kind of weirdly, like, patriarchal. Like, yes. there's a lot of gender stuff that you could dig into there. I mean, yeah, he, in general, yeah, he's trying to take, you know, he's mansplaining her. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's Batman, like, I know what's best for you. But also, there, it is coming from a good place. Would you say he's Batman-splaining? Oh, yes. <laughs> Oh my god. Why is, it, is that a thing? I don't know, but it's incredible. It's gotta be out there. If it's not don't, don't Batman-splain to me. Look, if it's not out there, if we look it up on Google and nobody said yeah. Batman-splain, you know here that it started right here. It was Jonathan Callan. He came up with the word. We have it on a podcast. I mean, I don't know, man. You deserve at least 50% of credit. Yeah, you're You right. got me there. You teed it up. That's true. That's true. Uh, you, we, okay. I just yes and it. I'll take the royalties for your hashtag <laughs> that's going to exist. <laughs> that's how that works, right? Yeah, 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 hashtag royalties for sure. So I think that's Ooh, mostly... that was fun. Thanks for bringing that in. Yeah. Uh, that's basically uh, it. Um, yeah, I guess I guess the, the only thing, the reason I bring that up, like the reason I'm super fascinated with that is the... Um, is, you know, and this... This sort of gets into, like, our conception of the Riddler, like, how we handle it. Yeah. And I think it's totally there in Deanie's detective, right? When Riddler kind of reforms and he becomes Enigma's consulting detective, 
there is something fascinating about the fact that Nigma is Nigma is representative of what I think is so there in so many Batman villains, which is that they could be great men and women if they were not total victims of their own pathology. Yeah. And that every Batman and every one of his villains are driven by their wound, right? You have a wound that makes you great in one way, but also really bad in others. And Batman is the only one that can harness it. Everybody else is ruled by it. Uh, so it's like, you know, we kind of asked the question very deliberately, like, why couldn't Nigma join the Justice League? Like, if he decided to be a, a detective, would he be as good a God, one as Batman? I'd love to see that episode. I hope, well, I won't, I can't ask you. Here. <laughs> uh, that sounds great, though. Yeah, and I just, I think it's really interesting that all of these people are ultimately sympathetic and ultimately undone by just 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 being like an inch on the wrong side of mastering their passions well i feel like that's that's so interesting i mean at least like maybe i'm just piggybacking off of this now uh but like i feel like when i think of creativity or people who are like really good creators in any art form usually it's driven by some sort of pain Mm -hmm. um it doesn't have to be, but boy, is it better <laughs> for the, you know, at some point, some real pain or something, you know, like they say, like express it through creativity. And I, I feel like that is kind of like these, these, especially Gotham rogues are like the most fanciful, creative men and women out there. And that's interesting. Like they're the ones that are like expressing it through art, but you know, they're, they're ruled by their wound. Right. Uh, they're not able to move on. And I think that's interesting. I don't know. That, like, just that parallel, seeing that is... Because I, I think there's something attractive about Batman villains over other villains. Uh, oh, well, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, this is something that I spend a ton of time thinking. Because we, we just went down the list. And I think that, by and large, if there's a, a repetition in there, if there's like, oh, both these guys are about dual identities... If you dug in, you'd be able to be like, okay, right. but here's the difference. If you dug into Killer Croc and Man Bat, you could find the difference easily. It's just easy, you know, like, that's almost, like, interesting to find what lumps them together, too, when you, whatever, want them to team up over something. Right. But what, but what's so interesting to me is, like, you look at, like, often people times say Spider-Man, second greatest rogues gallery in comics. And yet every Spider-Man villain is either scientist mentor figure falls from grace or... Uh, douchebag bank robber bonded with an animal suit. And what's interesting is that both of those represent the two most important sides of Peter, right? He is a genius striving towards better things, but he is also a blue collar kid from Queens just trying to pay the rent and like get his his aunt's medication. So it totally makes sense that those are the two kinds of villains he fights. Except that there's really not any difference between the rhino and the scorpion, right? Like when you look at Batman in this infinite rainbow of variety that gives you a thousand psychological flavors and wounds and then you look at spider-man and you're like yeah but what's the difference between miles warren and norman osborn and i really can't tell you no and i mean maybe it's just i'm not as well versed in spider-man or at least like the good spider-man i'm sure there have been writers that have tackled like you know really great spider-man villain stories like i'd love to read a great deep mysterio story 
but for the most part, he's just kind of a showy prick. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I guess you could say, like, he's showy, like, Peter's kind of showy, and maybe there's some... There's a story to be told there, but I haven't seen it other than, like, cool, he's got... He gets called Fishbowl Head a lot. And they're almost always tied into the soap opera, which is, goes back to what we were talking about before, right? Is every single one of these episodes are perfect short stories where you almost don't need to know anything going in, and I could show it to you. Whereas, like, Marvel, and this was part of the brilliance of their sales pitch, like, this was their business model, but it was all about buy the next issue. Yeah. But, like, there really are no, like, that perfect Doc Ock story, you know? It's just like, oh, well, these things were happening at the time, and he also had to fight Dr. Octopus, who was posing as the master planner. I would I would put this out there to people who are listening. If you disagree, I would love to read these stories that you know about that we don't know about. Because uh, I, I really am not familiar with it. Um, that's interesting. To, yeah. I mean, I, I truly, you know, I'm a Batman fan through and through. But we talked about this, I think, when we met up last time. But it's like, we are Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. you, you sympathize with Spider-Man because Spider-Man is like you and Batman is the ideal you. Uh, and that's interesting. He's like this unattainable kind of hero, whereas you are Peter. Which is why it's always so crazy that, you know, generation after generation, people make this mistake of like, well, we have to throw Robin in there. And I love Robin. Robin should absolutely be parts of stories. Yeah. But to think that kids can't relate to Batman without Robin, none of us really wanted to be Robin on the playground. We all wanted to be Batman. Yeah. Uh, it was cool to see Robin in there because there is that like parent element of Batman, but we all wanted to be Batman. Yeah. Uh, any other thoughts? I honestly, we I think we we just came off looking real smart there. So we <laughs> yeah, should let's just keep it keep it cool. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for coming on the show, man. This this was my pleasure, dude. This is I love your show, and this was so fun. Today's guest. David Wise. David's a writer who not only wrote some episodes for Batman the Animated Series, but also helped turn Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles into the juggernaut success it is today by helming the original animated series and creating characters like Bebop, Rocksteady, Krang, you know those guys. He also wrote for Transformers, Star Trek the Animated Series, Mighty Ducks, Rescue Rangers, and so much more for you 80s and 90s kids. John will be joining us for this conversation as well, so it's a long one, it's a good one, let's get... To it. I'm sitting down with David Wise and John Callen. How are you guys? I haven't really run a systems check, a full data check yet, but I seem to be okay. Okay, good. You're not blinking any emergency lights or anything. Not, not that I'm showing. Uh, I'm very fine. Uh, honored to be a part of uh, this for a second time. Yes, my guest co-host... Uh, you, which actually this will be technically your, your interview will be paired with this as well. So this is just like one fluid, exciting experience for the listeners at home. Uh, we're sitting in what can only be described as one of the coolest rooms I've ever been in. Uh, (laughs) for somebody like me, there's Disneyland, there's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, there's Batman the Animated Series, there's... The Enterprise. Some, oh, the Enterprise. Yeah, we got some Star oh, Trek. And Tom Servo's Christmas head, actual Christmas head prop, and the actual burned bomb crow from Mystery Science Theater 3000. And if you want to get, like, Silver Age science fiction nerdy about it, uh, Harlan Ellison, yeah. uh, Lester Dent for some Bronze Age, Bronze yep. Age fun. Yep, yep, yep. Really cool. We're yep. surrounded by only the most appropriate things. <laughs> yeah, plus, wanted- plus me. 
Whereas I don't know how I fit into all this. Uh, <laughs> you're kinda, yeah. you're you stuck could just stand with me. on the shelf, please. <laughs> yeah, I could actually do that, but I'm not going to. So we're here to talk about your writing for Batman the Animated Series, but first I wanted to kind of kick things off and, and get a little background on you as a writer in general. How did I, I did a little Wikipedia snooping. Uh, you peaked. Sorry, that's private. That's Sorry. private stuff. That's between me and my friends. Nobody's supposed to look <laughs> well, at my work. Public now, brother. Oh, brother. It says here that at age eight, you re- released a compilation of experiments entitled "Short Circuit," and you won awards for this. Mm-hmm. You awards and honors at yeah. the tender age of eight. So, well, what's the background on that? How did you get into film and animation? Initially? Um. Well, I um my um. My father ran an art gallery, first in Cleveland, and then we moved to New York when I was six. And it was a very cutting-edge art gallery that dealt with... He would just, he would do shows of kinetic art and optical art and light art and stuff like that. In the early 60s, that was, like, almost unheard of. So he was really into, like, tech art. And uh, a lot of these guys, these artists that he showed, uh, also made films. Um, meanwhile... I, uh, at the tender age of five or six, had seen, was addicted to the Woody Woodpecker show, which was on Monday through Friday. And it was a package of the Woody Woodpecker cartoons. And in between the cartoons, Walter Lance, the creator of the Woody Woodpecker cartoons, would show the process of animation production the pencil drawing, the, 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 you know, the pencil animation, pencil tests, tracing the cells, photographing them under the camera, all this kind of stuff. And I was just fascinated by it. I was, and I had a give-a-show projector, which was basically a flashlight with a focusing lens mm-hmm. on the end of it that you could run this, what was then called basically a film strip. It was like a 35-millimeter film with, with like four still pictures on them. And you would the first one would be, you know, part one of the story. And then they, they would have little puppets posed or whatever it was, or it would be a drawing. But each one was like a, a positive that you would, in show on the wall, I'm gesticulating wildly, which is genius for a podcast. And I took the damn thing, and I took some of my father's 35 millimeter camera film, his regular still camera film, soaked it in water, and scraped the emulsion off of it so it was clear, and then painted on it with like my poster paints and watercolors and things like that. And I would run it through this this give a show projector that's basically a flashlight with a projection lens on it, and make these light shows at age six and they're like, why are you doing that? And I said, well, cause I want to make cartoons, but I don't have the means, but I can at least make a light show with this thing. And they were like, my parents were like, Hmm. So they, these various artists who also made films and by films, I mean, you know, obviously very visual experimental animation, generally uh, scratching on directly on the film, mm-hmm. painting directly on the film, which I had sort of done with my give a show projector. Um, and stuff like that. And they started teaching me these, how to actually do these techniques on 16 millimeter film or with 16 millimeter film. And they all said to my parents, you know, this kid is like on his way to being an animator, get him some equipment, just get him a cheap 16 millimeter camera and whatnot. And they got me equipment and I was making flip books, which are, you know, anybody out there ever made a flip book, right? Oh, yeah. I was making my own flip books and they were really elaborate and I would have backgrounds and I would, you know, there'd be a house in the background, which means that for all a hundred pages of the little notepad or whatever you're doing on your flip book on, you had to draw that same house over and over and over while the character in front moved around, stuff like that. 
And uh, I started experimenting. I would scratch on film. I did like three minutes of just scratching up a black, uh, uh, literally a black film and scratching white lines in it with the scribe. I did paint and eventually I sort of got a little animation set up and I did, they got me a, pe a little pegboard and I did like, you know, a, 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 a like 17 second drawn animation sequence that I put under the camera and filmed. And then I started animating cutouts in front of the camera, frame at a time. I animated clay. I mean, this as the years went on, it's got my animated paint in the manner of Oscar Fissinger, who was a great German experimental filmmaker of the 30s and 40s, who and I had never seen. You were meeting these people, or at least the people I didn't meet Fissinger, yeah. yeah. When I was seven, parents. yeah, through my parents when I was seven. And also, guess what? A seven, seven or eight-year-old doesn't really have the money for, like, an animation camera. So what, my parents, what little boy doesn't love right, Oscar Fissinger? Right, exactly, you know, but... It's Mickey Mouse and No, Oscar I actually Mouse. only saw Oscar Fissinger, like, maybe 15 years ago, and I went, holy shit, this guy stole my stuff. Oh, wait, no, I stole his stuff, only I've never seen him. Hmm. Because <laughs> um, I would animate paint. And, and I did all these different experiments, and basically my father stitched them together just with glue, and I recorded a soundtrack, which was me banging on my mom's pots and pans and worrying the bottom of a copper pot with like an egg beater. So was it, it your idea to record the soundtrack? Um, I said it needed sound. Yeah. Hmm. And and then my dad just took the soundtrack and went to a lab and got optical, uh, you know, an answer print of the literally cut negative there was no negative cutter it wasn't clean or anything like that it was this 13 minute sequence of little short animated experiments and it was like popping the top off an a seven or eight year old and looking at what directly what was what inside what was inside an eight-year-old boy's head literally you know and all the butterflies and monsters and airplanes and rocket ships and things that would you know come popping out and People found it charming, and Jonas Mikas, who's a very influential filmmaker and film critic, had a column in the Village Voice uh, called Whoa. called Movie Journal, and he called me the Mozart of cinema when he saw my film. And this was by age eight or younger. This was at eight. I yeah. mean, that's we're and all striving next, for something like and that. And the next at all. thing I knew, <laughs> the next thing I knew, I was lecturing. On filmmaking at like Washington Lee University, they were asking, and I wasn't lecturing, I was basically putting on a, a show. You know, I'd come out in costumes and don post monster masks, and hmm. we, you know, we'd work up these, rig up these elaborate things. I would actually talk about filmmaking eventually, but I was like not going to stand out there at age nine or whatever and, and just talk. I, I was going to give them a show. I was written about, and I was a talk of the town piece in the New Yorker. I was written about time, life. Uh, what do you uh, remember from that time? Like, what were some of your favorite moments? Probably just the same day every month when Mad Magazine hit the stands. But, um, I well, it was really neat, you know, going and putting on a show for a bunch of college students and feeling like at age eight you were hot shit. My parents didn't really let it get, you know, they wouldn't let it get to me. You know, they said, no, 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 you, when you go back to school, you're just a, you know, you're just a schmo like the rest of them. And I was, I mean, I was not, you know. The, uh, it was just it was just it was fun that was the thing it was a lot of fun it was not a you know it was not work it was not i wasn't doing it for the glory i was always doing it because i wanted to try something and then a week later when the film came back from you know kodak projecting it and seeing how all of that time put into frame by frame manipulating something or manipulating cutouts in front of the camera or manipulating paint or whatever 
would look like when projected at 24 frames a second. I mean, that was the big deal for me. I mean, what was really interesting to me about that story is, you know, obviously what you were doing was really impressive, but your parents being that supportive, you know, like I've long been of the opinion that everyone who becomes a writer or an actor or something creative, either their parents didn't pay enough attention to them or their parents paid too much attention to them. Well, they kind of did that, though. (laughs) Now, remember, I did become a writer, but that was a few years down the road. Uh, They they were very good with that because that was what they did. I mean, my dad ran an art gallery. He he advocated for artists. He whoever was new, whoever was on the edge. He basically helped create video art. He gave the first gallery showing of video art in 1968 as in a show called TV as a Creative Medium. Um, and oh, when I got into writing TV, oh, was that the ultimate act of rebellion? Writing for <laughs> Hollywood, writing for the networks—that was like that was my big rebellion against them. Um, but at any rate, I, I jump ahead of the story. So this went on for a while. Uh, it was and it was a great way to get my parents, you know, attention and affection and whatnot. I was invited by Walt. Walt Disney heard about me. I was on I've Got a Secret when it was a primetime CBS show. And I won. You were Nobody saying Disney invited you over to... to the studio, yeah. To And we flew out over Christmas time. He was in Orlando scouting land for Disney World. But I got to meet with um, a bunch of the animators who, this being 1963, I think, like just the end of 63, uh, they were still bitching about having to animate all the spots on the dogs in 101 Dalmatians like <laughs> two years earlier. They were still complaining. That, about that was a really big deal at the time, oh, right? It was, huge, it was a huge deal, but it was doable because they eliminated the ink part of ink and paint by using xerography. That was the first feature film to use xerography. Yeah, it had a really unique style. It did, and it, it looks. you look at it and you can see the kind of the pencil showing through on the cell outlines and everything because it was just basically Xerox printed the cells were outlines were printed from mm-hmm. the pencil instead of having an ink and paint person tracing the pencil drawing in black paint on the cell it was just xerox right onto it um i also shot three frames of animation in mary poppins they were in the supercalifragilisticexpialidocious number it's a a close shot on the pearly band going up and down on the rail at hmm. the racetrack, you know, and uh, I they took me to the camera department, and left me alone with the camera guy, and I'm I'm watching as he's he's blowing the the dust off the one cell and closing the glass plate and firing the shutter release on the camera, and then he lifts the plate and moves the cell off, brings out the next cell, blows the dust off it, closes it. And I'm inching closer and closer, and finally looks at me. He goes, "You want to you want to press the button on one?" I was like, <laughs> so I pressed the button, and he. Changed the cell. He said, you want to do another one? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he pressed the button. And we did it for three. So which is probably a utter violation of all union rules. <laughs> so that, you know. That, that guy got fired. Right, exactly. Yeah. That was really <laughs> to make neat. make a child happy. <laughs> that was really neat. And then in um, I, I actually did a live action film uh, when I was 15. Just shot in my bedroom basically with a bunch of my friends it was scripted though we had a we had an elma elmac spider dolly in the bedroom we had baby brutes rigged up on the ceiling i mean it was actually a real sync sound and everything um but i went this is just getting too complicated and animators are control freaks an animator controls every we would say nowadays every pixel of the frame of every frame of the video Mm -hmm. the film the whatever and you need that's gives you total control. 
you don't like something, you erase it and put something else in there, or you just wipe it out, or you reach it, you know. So, and I was having to give up too much control. My animation projects were getting so complicated, and the live action thing involves, you know, a crew and actors, and I, you know, <clears throat> I, I was an introvert. I would just sit alone by my camera and do all this stuff. So, um, I went, I need a different thing to do with my life. This is at 15. And I went, I don't know why. I went, I'm going to become a science fiction writer. And I marched down to the 8th Street Bookstore and I bought an Asimov, a Heinlein, a Paul Anderson, a few other things, a couple of price still on that shelf, and started reading science fiction. And two, uh, the next year, I was at the Clarion Science Fiction Writers Workshop being taught by the likes of Harlan Ellison, Samuel R. Delaney, uh, Damon Knight, and Kate Wilhelm. I mean, all these, these big, big... And, and it was a disaster, but... In my 17th year, I went back and I started selling short stories. And Harlan bought a story and I sold one to, uh, to a couple to an anthology. And, and, and suddenly I was, at age 17, a published author. And, and that Harlan story was for Dangerous Visions, The right? Last Dangerous Visions. The never-to-be-published Last Dangerous Visions. And Vision. that is an insanely famous, like, like anthology. Non-existent. What about yeah. is it? Uh, what's famous about it? Well, well catch me up. They're, they just were the cutting edge of their day. They had every just every science fiction writer you could think of short of, I think, the real old guard like Isaac Asimov or Robert Heinlein. Um, every big theater, Sturgeon, uh, Norman Spinner, I mean, you name it. And that's, in that's what I think about them as. I, think, I right. think of Dangerous Visions as very much being the book that's about the forefront of the new wave. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely, it would maybe the crest of the new wave in a way. Again, is definitely the the second one. Again, Dangerous Visions, and then the third one, the last Dangerous Visions, which he kept buying stories for from every half baked writer. I mean, he even bought a story for me for Christ's sake, you know. And he it became so unwieldy. It was going to be two volumes, then it was going to be four volumes, and people have been trying to get him to write the damned introductions. I mean, most of the stories have the rights have reverted to the authors anyway. It's just it's never going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of famous to this day for being like like one of the most famous unreleased science fiction books ever. Hmm. Uh-huh. Yep. Charles Platt used to run uh, the dangerous the, the Last Dangerous Visions because the third volume was going to be called The Last Dangerous The Last Dangerous Visions Death Watch where every time an author who had a story in this never yet to be published anthology kicked the bucket <laughs> he would put it up but he liked tweaking Harlan. So that was my first sale and it's Within never been published. two years of deciding yes. that you wanted to become a science You're fiction writer. writer. Yes, at age 17. <laughs> uh, it's ridiculous, I know. I mean, even I go, how the hell did I do that? So um, I met a guy at Clarion named Russell Bates. He was full-blood Kiowa Indian. And uh, he had been he had been part of the WGA... Uh, I forget what it was called, but it, it was a minority outreach training thing for up-and-coming or would-be writers and a few years earlier and he had basically been assigned to learn from gene elkoon who was then on a show called the name of the game gene elkoon who was star trek in many ways more than gene gene l rodmer gene yeah the gene who could actually you know right knew about entertaining people <laughs> let's put it that way and um, so we knew Gene Kuhn. I think Kuhn may have been dead by then. This was 74 when this happened. This was like a, a year, the, the year... No, it was 73. 
but I think Kuhn had died like the year before, but I'm not sure about that. But because I never met him, and I'm in a lot of Russell's friends. Anyway, Russell had, through Gene, knew Dorothy Fontana, the story editor for Star Trek. And Russell had been trying to pitch a, a show to Dorothy because they were doing, in 1973, the Writers Guild went on strike just at the time that Filmation was ramping up production on an animated version of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, because animation was not at that time, <clears throat> or ever really much to speak of, covered by the Writers Guild, no real writer wanted to write for it. But because the Guild was on strike, Dorothy went, oh, okay, sure, I'll take a paycheck while we're on strike. All the writers, so they got you know a bunch of people who had written for Star Trek to come back and write episodes of the same, like David Gerald. Um, like, uh, I think, did Peoples write an episode? I can't remember. Anyway. Sounds plausible. So, and Russell, by virtue of having known Gene, was pitching to Dorothy, but he couldn't get a story sold. So, at Clarion, he came to me and said, look, you know animation. I went, you know, yeah, and I just sold three stories in a row, but what what is your point about animation? <laughs> and uh, uh, Maybe we should team up, because I'm trying to pitch this animated version about, of Star Trek. I went, cool. And I had never been a big Star Trek fan. Star Trek, I was like 10 or maybe just 11 when Star Trek premiered. And watching it, I thought the Enterprise, and still do to this day, the coolest spaceship ever. But I sensed it was a little too highfalutin and thinky and, you know. And frankly, I think I sensed the preachiness of it a little bit because kids are very sensitive to that. And I just went, I... You know, this ain't the outer limits. I'm not going to... They don't always have a good monster. So... Because I was 10. So I never got into it, really. But, you know, afterwards, I knew it had become a phenomenon. And that it it basically, in in syndication, people were rediscovering it, this being 73. Um, And the the whole fan phenomenon was starting to really gain ground. And so I went, sure, let's do that. And uh, we went in uh, to meet with Dorothy... And Russell was pitching these stories. Well, what about these? There's these mind parasites. And Dorothy was, no, no, no. Or there's these aliens who do this and this. No, no, no. And it was obvious to me what she wanted. She wanted what Russell brought to the party, which was his Native American heritage. So we left the meeting and I was like, smack on the side of the head. Russell, get with the program. She wants an Indian story. Let's come up with, and it was a very big thing at the time, Chariots of the Gods about were ancient Americans visited by aliens. You know, I said, well, there was an alien. And he actually spread the seeds of his knowledge all over Earth. And But nobody got it right. Everybody got just a little piece of it. And suddenly we had this idea for a story. And now he's come back in Star, in the, you know, Star Trek's time. And he's, he's seen what Earth has become, which was not what he meant to become. And he's really pissed. And basically the Enterprise stands between him and Earth. And they have to, you know, in the, in the, in the best tradition of Star Trek, basically talk him out of blowing the planet up. Um, and uh, we wrote the story outline. Dorothy liked it. And then it was like, well, you know what? We're full. So maybe next year. And we're like, there's not going to be a next year because the writers, you know. So we, we, Russell went back to Oklahoma. I went off to Laurel Canyon where I was living and a year passed and the phone rang and it was filmation going, we're doing another like six episodes of this animated Star Trek. And we really like your story outline. Would you come in and talk about it? And I mean, literally we had Russell on a bus from Anadarko, Oklahoma that night, you know, two days later we're at filmation and basically dealing with, I think his name was Mark Richards, who 
took over as story editor. And um, he said, just do it. Just write it. And, and he gave us a cassette of notes from Gene Roddenberry. Um, Whatever happened to that cassette? It fell apart. I had it. And it, it decomposed, unfortunately. But he, he said in it, intelligent life is too precious a thing to be led by the nose. And we actually put those words in Kirk's mouth in <laughs> the episode. Um, and they were good notes for the most part. I thought they were actually pretty good notes. So, so uh, we went, we wrote it. They shot it. I mean, they shot it. They animated it. We sure. went to the recording sessions, except we weren't at Shatner's. And he mispronounced a key word in the script, which is Kukulkan, because that's the Mayan god who's basically the alien. He kept saying it Kuklakan. Uh, like Kuklakan? <laughs> no, more like Kuk. Well, there was an old kid show in the 50s called Kukla, Fran, and Ollie that had a dragon who was just a hand puppet with a mouth. Mm-hmm. And in the our episode, Kukulkan actually kind of looks like a hand puppet with a mouth. He's hmm. the winged serpent god, kind of a dragon. And uh, we were like, oh, yeah, Kuklakan and Ollie. Okay. But everybody else is pronouncing right except for Kirk because we weren't there that day. Um, but anyway, so they, you know, but they shot it. It was word for word what we wrote. There were like no changes. And little did I realize that was going to be like my best experience writing animation ever. And it was like all downhill from this there. This is great. We're going to make it. Didn't you also win an Emmy for that? Uh, we, it won, it won the series, the best children's series Emmy. And gotcha. the writers did not get that Emmy the studio got those that Emmy, but I often thought about breaking into the filmation and stealing it one night. But yeah. I, never, I never got around to it. I think there's an Ocean's Eleven style heist. Yeah. That, uh, but it was happen. our. It was the the episode they viewed to judge it the best children's series was our episode. So as far as we're concerned, our episode won at the Emmy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which is the only Emmy, weirdly, that Star Trek has ever, ever won. Well, it's the only creative. It's the only major Emmy that Star Trek has ever won. It was the only Emmy that the first. That classic Star Trek in any iteration, everyone, the original three, three season series, it I was only learned this recently. It never won costumes, special effects, anything, music, nothing, never won an Emmy. This was the first one they won. Still the only major Emmy they won. Ironically, I read online, and I, I have to agree, even though I'm sort of tooting my own horn. I think if you haven't seen the animated Star Trek, which is coming out in October on Blu-ray. <laughs> Probably with my commentary track on our episode, which was on the DVD release. The animated Star Trek is more Star Trek than the third season of the original Star Trek. Because Dorothy Fontana was involved, Gene L. Kuhn was involved, a lot of the original writers were involved. And, um, you know, you look at some, you know, Hour of the Gun, all that kind of, you know, it's like... We had really good episodes. You know, we had the triple sequel. We had the thing about the Dorothy wrote called Yesteryear, which was Spock's childhood. And now I'm going off on an ad for that. Well, so, did you catch up on Star Trek having not yes, really watched yes, it in order yes, to write? Yes, and that's sort of when I became a fan of it. So oh. so I went in going, you know what, Star Trek's got a cool ship, you know. And then we just had to sit down and watch it because it aired Monday through Friday, you know, on a local channel in syndication. And I just watched all the episodes I could. David Gerald had just come out with his making of Star Trek and Trouble with Tribbles books from Ballantine's. I read those. And at that point, I got into the series, but I was like 18, so I was the right age for it. So, Which actually, weirdly, is exactly what happened to David Gerald. David Gerald sold right, his, right, his yeah. first teleplay when he hmm. was in college. It was Trouble with Tribbles. It also was considered like critically acclaimed. And I know that we're a Batman podcast, but I mean, this is my area of obsession. And like, <laughs> Fans are nuts for that cartoon series. Like they are ardent defenders of the idea that it is canon. You know they, uh, and you're absolutely right. The season three of the original series, 
the the producer running the show was like uh, was like the producer of Wild Wild yeah, West. Yeah, 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 Freddie yeah. Freiberg. Uh, and in you know it was all goofy and silly and and it was all supposed to be colorful kids stuff. Right. And and ironically, the cartoon show, which was considered to be for kids, very adult. Yeah, it's much more mature. It's certainly the most grown up cartoon I ever wrote. Um, you know, the Batman stuff comes close. So just quick recap on the rest of the career. So then I wrote a lot of live action and animation. I wrote the Space Vampire episode of uh, Buck Rogers in the mm-hmm. 25th Century. Uh, I wrote for Wonder Woman. Uh, did a lot of animation work. Tarzan, He-Man, etc., etc., etc. Then I came to Transformers. <laughs> I was the most prolific. I wrote the most episodes of any writer of Gen 1 Transformers. I wrote the entire... Gen 1 finale season, which wound up being all of three episodes, a three-part finale. I did the origin story of Optimus Prime. Um, I was kind of a key writer on that show. Uh, and then uh, I developed this... Tiny little, little series. Tiny little... This, this, little TMNT? This crummy little black and white comic <laughs> called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And well, you I think turned I, it into what it is... I, I basically <laughs> I didn't create the turtles I didn't sure. give them I didn't come up with that great name I didn't give them I didn't come up with the situation of the sewers and you know Splinter and all that that was all great that was Eastman and Laird 100% they deserve all the kudos what they like get Krang, Bebop, Brock alright that was me yes <laughs> I basically gave them everything that made them popular beyond the name and the great names and whatnot yeah, and by the way in my, for the audience right I gave them the pizzas and Cowbunga Dude and Turtle Power and the van and Bebop and Rocksteady and Krang and all that. That was me. I was the showrunner like for... the five-part you know, yeah, pilot, I did the, right? I did the five-part pilot, uh, and then uh, I w- was on it at the very beginning of the syndicated left, but then wound up writing, like, I don't know, 30 episodes of the 65, <laughs> about half the, the syndicated episodes, and then came back as showrunner when it went to CBS for, like, the next seven years. And... Um, uh, I, I had a thing to say, and it, it just went right out of my let, head. Let me jump in with this sure. question, because like, please, because I, I just vapor lock. Well, Justin <laughs> things. Justin's thing is a Batman podcast, and, yes. And in drawing it back to Batman, I always thought what was very interesting about those first five. You know, as much as I love, you know, some of the goofier elements, like hot rotting teens from Dimension X and stuff well, like that, that. Yeah, that is the first five. But it yeah. felt darker in a weird way like it felt you know there were more shadows it felt like the sky yeah this overcast thing that reminds me of batman and i wonder was there a conscious lightning after those five like um i think it was really um yes there was a conscious lightning and it had to do with the connection to the playmates toys and them wanting goofier and goofier toys uh it got darker when it went back to CBS. Judy Price CBS had wanted a kick-ass series, and that's when the famous Red Sky episodes also happened, which was not my idea. But no, I will tell you that was my what I what I said. I'll tell you a quick little story. So I I said this is a five-parter. Each episode is going to be an event, but there's going to be a bigger arc unfolding, which was unheard of in series animation, in TV animation at that time. And I said each episode we peel another layer off the onion until we get to who the real villain is in the final episode and fred wolf said great love it and i said i'm going to write the five story outlines first and then do the scripts because it's all one big story he said okay that's you know you're going to be in a lot of pressure to get the scripts in on time for the recordings i said i know so i wrote the five-part story outline and the then producer who thank god got fired off of it 
forget his name. It wasn't Rudy Zamora. Rudy had already left. Um, read this and went, this is terrible. It's not funny. I said, it's not supposed to be funny. It's story. Said, but it's just superhero stuff. I said, you bet your ass it's superhero stuff. The way you don't do funny on top of funny. You do funny on top of serious. We're doing a straight ahead superhero action adventure you know, classic Marvel story, which is why they fight the neutrinos and the hot riding. As soon as they meet, they start fighting, right? You know, and the turtles will make it funny. So the script will be funny, but but it's got to have the underpinning yeah, you need of a solid action adventure show with actual threat, actual danger. Uh, uh, you know, because that's the humor bounces better off of that. And eventually, of course, as I knew it would, especially in the syndicated '65. It wound up being kind of comedy on top of comedy, you know. And I like comedy on top of drama. To me, comedy just shines more bright, burns more hot when you're when you're actually in a situation where you're anxious and somebody breaks the tension with the joke. Um, so uh, uh, that was the that was my, and I don't think it was perfect, but that was as close as I got the, that five parter to like kind of my ideal superhero series. And all of the humor, not all of it, but I mean. It, huge amount of the humor just came out of the Marvel comics I read when I was because I was the perfect age for Marvel comics I was 11 in 1966 which was the peak maybe year for Stan's and Kirby's and Ditko's run at those comics um, and there was humor in them and that was not lost on my little 11 year old self and I recently rewatched the Turtles 5, five part pilot and I was like this shit is all from Marvel Comics. Holy cow. <laughs> and even to the point where um, the the climax of the five-parter is a giant portal opening over New York City with an entire alien army slash armada poised and ready to come through. And the turtles have to shut down the portal before the army comes through. You're welcome, Joss Whedon. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same ending. And, and as much as I would tweak him for stealing my ending... I happen to know for a fact we both got that from Jack Kirby. <laughs> so you know it's 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 straight Marvel comics with 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 kind of, but we turbocharge the humor somewhat. W- would you say that's an accurate description? I would it? absolutely say yeah. that's an accurate. I mean, like the the the. I mean, obviously, the rest of the series had no uh, need to be. It, it didn't lack for success. But when I go back, those first five are the ones that are yeah. the easiest to revisit as an adult and be like, man, this is really good. Speaking of which, do you remember the Batman the Animated Series parody episode I did of Turtles? Night of the Dark Turtle? No. Donatello gets clonked on the head and basically becomes Batman. He goes, you know, he basically becomes, this city's a cesspool of crime. <laughs> so he goes, you know, and he puts, he goes... I need I need a symbol that will strike fear in the hearts of my enemies. But what? And he literally sees like a jar of turtle wax and goes, "Aha! I know it. A turtle." <laughs> I mean, and and we parodied all the different conventions of the animated series, like dangling guys from high places to get them to talk. You know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so, I've always, yeah. I've often thought that in that moment when he's just like, "Father, send me a symbol." It's like, what if like a tree had crashed through though? Like, there's right. so many things that could have happened. Tree man, yeah. <laughs> Oak man. It's a clunky origin. <laughs> Actually, I kind of like the sound of that, the though. shadow. I'm Oak man. <laughs> All so right, let's so let's get to yeah, let's yeah, get to I mean, It feels like we've, well, we've well, well, there's, to it. well, what in what few you know 
gigabytes on your computer. Are oh no, to we've us. got gigs and gigs. Ah, okay. Uh, so at this point, you've written a ton for animation. Uh, you succeeded as an experimental <laughs> filmmaker. I, I did as all a that child. stuff. You, yes. You've won an Emmy, uh-huh. uh, or at least won an Emmy for a studio. This is we're back from the second act, and you're doing the recap. I right? am. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah, we had the intermission. So how did you get involved with Batman the Animated Series? A guy called me up. No, um, uh, the story editors were both good friends of mine, Michael Reeves and Marty Pasco. Uh, and uh, Michael said, you know, I'm story editing this new Batman series. It looks like it's going to be really cool. You know, once you write for it, I was like, great. You know, and I had never done Batman. And I knew, uh, I knew uh, since I was eight years old, I'd known Jerry Robinson, who created the Joker. Uh, he was a family friend. I knew him. I Your saw family him. friend wow. created the Joker. Yeah, yeah. I, I had I, to no, repeat I it back because that <laughs> yeah. was such a cool yeah. fact. Yeah. Oh, I knew a lot of weird... I hate... I'll tell you sometime about the time John and Yoko came over to my parents' house. I mean, we now's a cool time. <laughs> they came over. I, I bummed cools off of John and... I asked him if he was... Because the live piece in Toronto had just come out. I asked him if he was going to ever record with Clapton again. I was 15... Uh, 16 at the time. I said, you ever going to record with Clapton again? Lena said... I don't think so. He's a junkie. And little 16-year-old me was going, I know that Clapton is a junkie. Holy shit. This is so cool. I know something nobody knows. He was very nice. So anyway. Um, I love uh, the idea of you and John Lennon smoking cigarettes and like your mom cool. comes down the stairs. It's like, John Lennon, scram. <laughs> oh, I did the closet. <laughs> it's my mom ditching. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I love the idea of the two of you on the lamb after that. Uh, Crikey. So uh, anyhow, what the hell did I get? Oh, Jerry Robinson. So so I was like, and then they Michael wound up not being my story editor. Uh, Marty wound up being my story editor. But Marty had been my story editor. On other, he was my story editor on My Little Pony. <laughs> Basically, went from My Little Pony to Batman the Animated Series. Oh, those are two very similar shows. I actually enjoyed writing My because it was it was funny and it was sort of a fantasy show and and I, I either did stuff that was really goofy and funny or really sick and twisted and scary. So <laughs> it was it was kind of neat. Um, so uh, you know, and I'm I'm going. I know Jerry Robinson. I must get the Joker. And Martin said, "Okay, we're we're giving you the Clock King." And I was like. Yes, I... What? <laughs> Wait, what? The Clock King? The Walter Slezak from the stupid TV series? What? Everybody else gets Two-Face and, 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 and Penguin and, and Mr. Freeze, and I get the Clock King? And then in my head, I saw the climax of Hayao Miyazaki's Castle of Cagliostro, a film I saw... For the first time in 1980 in Japan, mm-hmm. uh, I saw it before any of those Pixar jerks saw it, uh, and I thought of the Clock Tower climax from that, which is of course very very famous. And I went, I can do the clocking. I can actually do that. John knows this because we've actually we've tweeted about this. <laughs> um, so I did the clocking, and then he said, "Okay, we're giving you the Riddler now." And I went, "Well, at least the Riddler is like a bigger name villain." And then I went, "Oh my God, the riddles." Oh, holy shit. Oh, this is not going to be pretty. Yeah, it's the homework of writing yeah. a Batman film. Yeah, exactly. Um, you want me to jump in there? Or do yeah, you have let's other dive co- in. Okay, so, so smart, why aren't you rich? Which is the first Riddler episode of the series. So, um, the first thing Marty said to me was, the one thing we don't want to do is, riddle me this, Batman. And I said, dude, I have no problem with not doing that. Don't worry <laughs> about that. But I also realized, you know... I. I he said, we want these to be, like, fiendishly difficult riddles. 
And what, well, a fiendishly difficult riddle is really a puzzler. And if you watch the episode as I did last night in preparation for this, so I didn't, so I only sounded like a partial idiot and not a complete idiot. Uh, he's really more the puzzler than the riddler, you know, uh, which is cool, you know. Um, but uh, I went okay, uh, and Marty said so. We've done some. I've done. We, we've obviously thought about this character a lot, and then he dumped like 120 pages of backstory he had written on Edward Nigma, who his parents were, when his grandparents emigrated from the old country, what his astrological sign Whoa. was. Oh, it was horrible. It was like it's like I'm like, dude, don't give me this stuff. I this, you know. And I started to clutch up. I seriously did. I I, I I've never frozen, I've, but I I actually we will get to it. Froze in the writing of this show and hit a wall, which has never happened to me. But except this one time. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell a big secret with this. Um. So uh. He said, you know, we were thinking that he would, like, work for a game company, and he would design this computer game, but he wouldn't own it because of work for hire, and they would own it. We figured, you know, that would be great for you because of your experience with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> and I went, okay, I don't really hold any grudges about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but um, all right, you know. But it is the first, I think it is the 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 the... And landmark in children's animation, the first animated TV sh show for kids to introduce the concept of a work for hire contract. <laughs> yeah, as part I, of the plot went over my head as a yeah. Kid, I'm kind of thinking watching it. Right. I was like, oh, oh man, I, I relate to this. Mm -hmm. But we <laughs> we did talk about that in my interview. Yeah, and it's very interesting to know because you know without spilling any secrets or, or casting aspersions on anyone, I was like, you know, I wonder about this, but I knew that you didn't sort of have any antipathy. So it's interesting to know that it actually came from another source. Yeah. It was Marty thinking you can relate to this, right? And I went, well, yeah, I can relate to it a little bit, but it doesn't matter. It's a solid motivation. It doesn't matter whether I relate. I'm not that kind of writer. I mean, you know, it's the way I work is I always look at the, what's the fun for me. In what this. was the fun for you in this? And not the riddles. Let me tell you. Um, but uh, no, the fun for me was the main. When I said, okay, the game is Riddle of the Minotaur. They go through a maze. We're going to have a theme park that's like the maze, only everything's full-size, audio-animatronic, and Nigma has weaponized it all. Oh, I love it so much. I and love we get the Minotaur itself. We get a Ray Harryhausen-type yes. Minotaur. You know, we get the Hand of Fate flying around the Griffins and all that kind of stuff. And that, that was my in to the fun, was really the, the maze at the end. Now... It's a really I, I don't often speak highly of my own stuff, but my but that's actually I just watched it. It's it's not a bad episode. No. Which, which any know. writer who's ever worked for me will tell you that's like my highest praise. It's not bad. <laughs> um, um but the 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 riddles and the puzzles were like between that and Marty's and not to blame Marty, because he that's just the way he works, but I was so felt so inundated with backstory on this guy. That when it came, when I started writing the script, I clutched up and I went like days and days and days and I couldn't get a word out. And uh, I finally called my friend Bryce Malick, who was my story editor on Transformers. And I said, I want you to do me a favor. Come, come, come hither. Come at my command, surf. Uh, scamper over here and just start writing. Just pick up where I, where I froze and start writing. And at some point or other, I'm going to go, no, 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 that's not right. And I'll have to jump in and start writing again. And I 
think, I'm not sure about this, but I think Bryce may have actually come up with the corn is as high as... An elephant's uh, ear or high or something? Because Bryce is a big Rodgers and Hammerstein fan. Okay, and that's a line from Oklahoma. Oklahoma, Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah. yeah. corn is as high I as am. an elephant's eye. Oh, right, exactly. And <laughs> he may have come up with that particular riddle. Um, and what's very funny about that? We talked about this, but you know, Batman has the joke. Where he's like, "Before your time," and it's one of the only things I can think of that dates anything in the animated series ever. Because it's like there's Tommy guns and 40s cars and supercomputers. Can I also say, not my line. (laughs) (laughs) I I had him just simply say, it's a song lyric. And leave it at that. Um, uh, But by the way, most of that stuff, those are my lines. There there were, I I was like, dang, there's some good, there's some, I wrote some, and and they didn't mess with it. What were some of your favorite lines? Do you I'm hear? trying to remember now. God, is there is there like a quotes thing on like TV.com or something? I'm Somewhere sure. there is, but we. All right. Well, let's not. Unless you want to pause. I mean, Robin felt like a ninja turtle in some ways. Like I yeah. remember. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Thinking, yeah, absolutely. Like oh, he's a smart Alec here. Yeah, he really was. A little, got a little Donatello in him. <laughs> yeah. Well, Donatello is the uh, the snarky one, right? Um. I don't know if you know that this the riddle of the Minotaur maze was adapted into a video game level in a Super Nintendo game. No, I had no idea. Yeah, there's an entire stage based off of this episode. So you can play no kidding. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also fun. the last line, how much is a good night's sleep worth? That, there's a riddle for you. Um, oh, yeah. That's one of the... I mean, we talked about this in the interview, but like... what? A, what my, a my, my, can, can, can we actually have a brain beneath that pointy cowl of ours? <laughs> to me, that is such a defining line of that character. Like, that really sets the tone of who he is. And, and I also thought as a topper, because the thing that was scaring me all the way through was I knew I had to come up with the riddle of the Minotaur. After all... The, I mean... Honestly, I will never top that musical puzzle where where there, there's three keys, oh, yeah. A, C, and D, and knives fly out at them when he uses A, so he goes for D, and Robin says, no, it's C, because the key of A and D have X number of sharps, but C has no sharps in it. The key of C has no sharp notes in it. That was like, I was like, oh, pat myself on the You're back You're like, great, now how do I fill the rest of it? Right, now? no, well, it was like, what the hell is the riddle at the end of it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think... Oh, I'm sorry. And I remember just happening to see something about the lobes and hemispheres of the brain. Actually, it was the chambers of the human heart. That was the line. And I went, wait, the brain. The brain has, like, lobes and chambers or something. And I looked it up and I went, you could make a riddle out of this. And it was like, it actually, I thought, kind of worked as a top of riddle. It's guessable, but, you know. Well, you you mentioned the the brain under the pointy cowl line. Yeah. And I specifically, I rewatched all the Riddler episodes before we did Riddler for Justice League action. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm sure the writer probably doesn't listen to podcasts. Uh, so I think we can say, like, that there was a writer on the show who, you know, sometimes tells stories about the fact that he really wanted a very cold kind of um, William Buckley sort of style to the Riddler, right? And that the actor performance that brought it now, are we speaking uh, a priori or a posteriori? <laughs> uh, and um, uh, and in, instead, I think that there's actually wonderful fun 
to the kind of fey or effeminate mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. qualities that are brought, mm-hmm. we literally have a, a moment where Nygma... Well, because it's also really condescending. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like we have a moment where Nygma literally goes as far as to kind of stroke Green Arrow's beard just kind of while delivering <laughs> like a zinger. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's it's just this side of like, is he? But like, it's kind of fun. He's to me. He's like it. Almost doesn't matter. What yeah. really matters to him is that he's the smartest guy in the room. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. and it shouldn't matter. That is the most important part of it. Is that he like that? Mm-hmm. His intellect. Well, that's his. Well, I mean, look too. at the suit. <laughs> I mean, to paraphrase to paraphrase Kickass, dude, that is one gay suit. <laughs> Um, I'd love to see an openly gay Riddler. Uh, I, mean, I, I would have no problem with it. You know, and here's the thing, you know, we're not, I don't think we're quite at the point where we can do that, but we're getting very close. But you have to have enough gay heroes before you can start with the gay Right, we villains. don't want to only vilify gayness. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then just, yeah. Right. That's a good point. And and we have we have a lot of problems with it in kids television. Like I honestly think it's you know it's it's you see it a little bit in Steven Universe, and there was kind of a nice implication at the end of Legends of Korra. But generally speaking, if you went, let's make one of our heroes gay, Vernon, on TMNT. Really, in my mind, he was. <laughs> and I feel like there are a lot of characters that like the adults writing. For he hangs around with know. April all day, and he never makes a pass at do her. That just, tells you something. Do we just <laughs> break? New TMNT canon? I think so. <laughs> Hopefully. You, you heard it here first, yep, folks. You did. Vernon, Vernon's well, out. <laughs> here, here's the other thing. Well, listen to... Uh, 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 was it Peter Renn? Did Peter Renn do Vernon? I forget who did the voice, but listen to the delivery. I mean, it's quite... It's a pretty over-the-top uh, version of... It's <laughs> reasonably... It has a certain, shall we say, elan to it. A certain savoir-faire, a certain... A certain sort of fake poshness to it, <laughs> you know. Um, but in my mind, it was. But it was not an issue. The point was that it was. You know, he's just. He's a coward. Uh, he's not as smart as he thinks he is. He's. You know. But but. He also. Uh, uh, you know, probably has an excessive interest in. He's probably very neat, and has an interest in interior design. And as do I, I should say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we are. I've had I've had so many gay guys hit on me. You know, when I start talking about like, you know, do you have any Eames upholstery or you know something like that? And they're like, oh, I love this guy. <laughs> so, well, what was your experience watching your episode come back? I mean, you've already seen a bunch of stuff. You uh, know. The Riddler. Yeah. Mm, now. Or or the first time you saw it. Uh, first time I saw it, I was like, God, he looks like the freaking Lucky Charms leprechaun. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I love that costume so much. I like it now. Yeah, I've, I finally got a. Cr- I had issues with the with the with the look of of the Batman series. I actually got in trouble for voicing them in a Starlog interview once really? while the show was still in production. Yeah, I didn't like the way I didn't like the lantern John Batman. He kind of looked like a. It was just it was just too cartoony for me. And I think I'm right, but I also think I was wrong. And certainly that has become, you know, Bruce did, has become the style, you know. So they can't argue with success, if nothing else. But, um, you know, as somebody, I was a fan of the Fleischer Supermans, but the Supermans were not as stylized as Batman was. And, you know, my gods were, you know, people like Kirby, Ditko, Wally Wood, you know, guys like that who were more, who took realism and and who did sort of hyperbolic realism. 
Do you like Alex Toth? Yeah, love Alex Toth. Okay, because I think that would probably be the one that Bruce yeah. would cite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 but um, to me, it's more Harvey Kurtzman. So, because everything bends and you know, and everything's it's very exaggerated. And you know, it works now. I my eyes had a hard time adjusting to it. I saw what they were going after. I didn't think they always got it. I had other issues with the show. I was not crazy about a lot of the voices, a lot of the straight actors that they used who didn't have voice experience just sounded like people reading lines and not actual people or like um the guy who did gordon who was in his it was around 70 bob hastings yeah he he always was a boyish actor in his prime i listen to him i go this guy's in his 20s this does not this does not go with the white hair and the mustache and you know it doesn't sound right to me it doesn't fit right to me he's a good actor but you know so i had i had some you know on the other hand uh kevin What's his name is Batman? I mean, he's freaking fantastic. Hamill was great as, as you know, he was like, you know, textbook Joker. Yeah. Um, also the pacing. I mean, there's a lot of times where, like when they're going into the, when they're going into the maze the, the, at the amusement park and the Riddler goes, you have 10 minutes, Batman, better get moving. And he vanishes and they, Batman and Robin look to each other. And then they look ahead, and then step, step, step. And I was watching it for the first time. I was going, "What are you doing? Run!" He just said ten minutes. Why are you walking so slow? What is with this deadly pacing? You know. But there you go. Um, I, mean, I, I think there's a creative lesson there, right? Is that like you, you know, you grow up in one generation, you look back at a thing, and you tend to lionize all of it. Whereas if we were there when it was made, you know, we would have had opinions. We oh, would have had for things sure. we liked and didn't. And yeah. Anything that I work on now, it's it's like much more critical. But when you grow up with it, it's canon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And you know what? Kirby had real anatomy issues. His anatomy <laughs> is just. What do you mean? They were all no, very normal looking human beings. No, no, no. I mean, <laughs> literally just basic drafting anatomy issues. Not. You well, know. I have not met many rock monsters. Also, as he humans. got as he got older, did you notice that the all of his faces got just wider and yeah, wider like and wider. Yeah, they exactly. Got it was like it was like a you know uh, taking a, a a four a four to one aspect ratio old style TV picture and stretching it to the sixteen <laughs> by nine widescreen. You know, but um, anyway, so I had some issues with that. Also, I was told by Marty, you know, when I was doing the first one, which was clocking. Um, I said, "How long are the scripts?" He said, eh, 34 to 36 pages. I was like, what? Wow. I, now, now, why are you saying wow out of curiosity? Because because now that would be absurdly long. Like, that would be, you know, most it's 27 to 30. Dude, my average Teenage Mutant Ninja, my average anything script was 42 pages because I direct. Because of called shots, yeah. Right, yeah. I, I, I direct, but here's the other thing. My, my stuff, think about my background. Okay, they loved me. This is one of the reasons why, where I made my bones was not with Turtles. It was saving shows that they, the cheap writer had screwed up who they thought they could get for a dime. And then they got to hire me for top dollar at the last minute when the show is like seven weeks behind schedule. Whew. You can bring it up to speed because my stuff goes straight to board and the board guys have no problems with it. But my average pay script was like 40, 42 pages. My scripts are really dense. You look at even that Riddler one, it's pretty dense for a Batman story. And one of the things that got me about Strange Case of Bruce Wayne, which we're going to talk about later, was how little story there was to it. It was like, it. Fe- I mean, literally, there, it feels like there's twice as much stuff 
three times as much stuff in the there's all the riddles there's the amusement park there's mm-hmm. the fight at the nightclub there's all these scenes you know um, yeah there's a lot because I like to write little movies you know I overwrote and it you know it was hard to yeah, do but that's it that what way. I love about the episode in particular is it does feel like a little movie I think the best mm-hmm. episodes of this series feel like that's contained what I was, films that's what I was always shooting for but anyway in those days 34 to 36 six page scripts were short and I said is this like you know an 18 minute because the rule of thumb was two pages per minute it was double what a live action script was it was literally two pages a minute so uh, if you had a 21 minute show that's 42 pages so I said well you know what are you doing like an 18 minute episode here he said no we need to leave some room so the board guys can jam I said, what do you mean the board guys can jam? So they can do some, you know, their clever creative stuff and do some. And I said, so basically we have to we have to write our scripts short so that the board guys can stop the story in the middle of the story and show off. And he said, yeah, basically we have to do it. (laughs) And I knew there were some I knew there were some compromises between like the art side and the writing side because it had been in production for a year and they hadn't even had didn't even have a script yet. Because the art guys were running the show and not produ- they're producing great designs and great drawings and great backgrounds and, and lovely storyboards and no stories. Well, even Alan talks about the fact Burnett. Alan Burnett, yeah, uh, who uh, who's one of my bosses on Justice League Action. He talks about the fact that when you go back to those first Batman's, even he would say, you know, they're a little slow. They're just like even I'm kind of like, oh, maybe just pick up the pace just right. 15% more. I think they were glad they were done. And I think a lot, well, I think a lot about that, about the opening of that Riddler episode of like the thing that y- you would still never do in animation today, which is just like, it's a good 30 seconds of Nigma just walking, walking. Yeah. to the office. Yeah. And I'm sure that in your script, it didn't say 30 seconds of Nick walking to the office. No, no but it needs down. it needs a little... It, there's got to be... You have some setup to do there because he's about to find that his office isn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, they basically... Th- that sequence is probably as much as 10 seconds longer than it needs to be. And it's kind of... There's no music. There's, I think, maybe Muzak in the background or something. It's a little deadly. And that, that sort of stuff just drove me up the wall. I mean, I would say it's filmic. Mm-hmm. But I definitely also understand as an animation writer, you know, I, I would be worried now. You know, I would, I would be like, mm, pick up the pace a little. Right. But as a fan, I also look back on that and appreciate it so much as just like, oh, we're just... You well, now you fight for time. Well, <laughs> have well there, to me, there's a difference, yeah, between giving the story some room to breathe and, like, just being slack. That's... And especially when you're doing overseas animation and it's a huge chain of, you know, procedure going through, you know, from the script to the, you know, editing bay, basically, uh, an awful lot can go wrong in that chain. So it's it's amazing that it came out as well as it as it came out. Well, I want to wrap up on this episode. Were there any parting thoughts on If You're So Smart? Um, it holds up pretty well. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it, you know, it's, it's a, it, you know, and it got the Riddler off. And I mean, are they still doing that Riddler, or is he different now? You tell me. I, I, I would say he's a little different. I mean, I would say is he cuter. Yeah, I mean, we have Brent Spiner, um, which is, you know, and this is a bit self-serving, but I think that the the most 
iconic Riddler I've seen in my lifetime, maybe with me exempting Gorshin. But Gorshin is not playing anything that resembles the Riddler from the comic books. No. And, and, and he's scary. His Riddler is actually genuinely unnerving. He's angry. He's angry. He's pissed off. His veins are always popping. And he's like, he's, you know, I think he was trying to differentiate himself from Romero and, and the, the character of the Joker. But in a way, there's crossover because his laugh, I mean, unlike the Joker's laugh, and Romero's laugh was great. His laugh is genuinely. I mean, Gorshin's creepy. is a perfect Joker laugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it, it's yeah, it's genuinely. Scary. I mean, I've I've heard Alan say exactly that, where he's like, you know, weirdly, I think Gorshin is playing a pitch perfect Riddler or pitch perfect Joker. Joker. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd uh, agree. Yeah, well, but, it feels like even like that's what Jim Carrey was going for in Batman Forever. It was like possible. a weird version of the Joker. But I you mean, just feel like that Riddler would like stick you with a shiv if it came down to it. You know, well, he's yeah, he's more scary. unpredictable. Yeah, he's scary. Anyway, so you're, it got him. It got it got us away from Riddle Me This mm-hmm. and put the Riddler kind of back where he belonged. And all all in all, I think you know of. I, I don't know. I like both of my, you know, main episodes, which were Clock King and this. The Clock King, simply because I was sort of amazed that, given that crummy character, that we actually were able to do something, <laughs> you know, pretty interesting with it. And this one, just because, well, it's the Riddler, and it's got it's got a lot of stuff in it. And well, it's apparently all you love to write very fastidious psychopaths. Apparently, which <laughs> I am the least fastidious dude you will ever meet. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also the guy who came up with, you know, totally tubular cowbunga. So, yeah, why I didn't mean, the Riddler say that? It well, was cut. And, uh, Cut yeah, for time. Exactly. Makes sense. Yeah, they had to have the Riddler walking around. Right, Nick right, walking right. We needed that walking <laughs> shot. That makes the that Another makes six the minutes of him walking around the office before he discovers his job is gone, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, well, thanks. Thank you, guys. Thank uh, you. Love, you. Love talking about it. All right, that's our show. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes, leave us a review, rate it. Us being me, you know how this works, but write what you like. Follow the show on Twitter at BTAS Podcast and follow me at Hey Justin. In addition to iTunes, you can also listen on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Donate to the show and get cool rewards at patreon.com slash BTAS Podcast. Batman the Animated Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Justin Michael. Tom Smith created the show logo, Casey Trela helped produce the theme song, and Harry Chaskin is the booming voice of the podcast. Thanks to my guests, Jonathan Callan and David Wise. Special thanks to This American Life producer, Tori Malatia, even if he does condescend to me while I'm editing, saying things like, My, my, can we actually have a brain beneath that pointy cowl of ours? Tori, I like a good ribbing like the next fella, but uh, maybe you can cool it. All right, guys, catch you on the next episode of BTAP, baby! 